Oh, we're back. Yes. When did you first lay eyes on Master Orson Welles? Well, many, many years ago, I used to spend my holidays with my aunt, who was quite an affluent gal, yeah. and lived at the Waldorf Astoria, the old Waldorf. One time, there was a little boy who came in with a gentleman who wore a Stetson hat and had little white trousers on and blazer and so forth, and he was explaining about a concert to two old dowagers. And I, I was just fascinated with this little boy. And I said to my aunt, listen to his vocabulary. Did you ever hear such vocabulary in your life? I was awestruck with this youngster. Well, anyway, during the time that I was there, we went into the drugstore and I was having a chocolate soda and he sat beside me. I said, I hear you went to the concert the other day. And he said, yes, I wanted to hear more about this. And we talked and talked. Well, all right, years pass. I get here to New York and every once in a while in meeting Orson and we work together, of course, in radio, I would think, it seems to me that I've seen you before. Somewhere I've seen you and then it would pass. Well, we were out on the set at uh, Citizen King, and they had just done a story about it in the Saturday Evening Post. And he said, have you seen this? And he tossed the magazine over to me, and I opened it, and there was a picture of the little boy. And I said to him, Orson, did you ever spend your holidays in New York City? And he said, yes. I said, where did you stay? At the Waldorf Astoria. And I said, I told him the story, and he said, what to think, Aggie, that I knew you when I was seven years old. <laughs> so every time you ask Orson, you know how yeah. long he's known me. He says, well, I've known him since I was seven years old. Stand by. We'll be on the air in 15 seconds, Mr. Wells. Yes, I know. Stand by, everybody. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, I wish I'd get my wish tonight. Are you, Mr. Wells? Who's that? Me, Jiminy Cricket. Uh, what's that, Mr. Wells? I don't know. I guess I was just talking to myself. Hello, Mr. Wells. Hey, who are you anyway? Where are you? Well, I'm right here by your side from now on. I'm your conscience. Look here, aren't you Jiminy Cricket from Walt Disney? That's right. What are you doing away from Pinocchio? Well, he doesn't need me anymore, but you do, Mr. Wells. Somebody's got to keep you out of trouble. We can't have you scaring the whole country again for one thing and for another. All right, Mr. Wells. Good evening. This is Orson Welles, and this is the first of a new radio series brought to you with the compliments of our sponsor, Lady Esther. Tonight it's our now, plan... Now, don't do too much talking. We of the Mercury Theater... Get on with On Monday, September 15, 1941, grateful to be finished with Citizen Kane, a 26-year-old Orson Welles returned to radio with the Mercury Theater on a variety program for Lady Esther Cosmetics. Cliff Edwards was Jiminy Cricket. The Mercury troupe of actors like Agnes Moorhead, Ray Collins, and Joseph Cotton were joined by Hollywood newcomers like Elliot Lewis, Hans Conried, and Byron Kane. The Lady Esther show would experiment. They performed short dramatic pieces, poetry, and comedy. Wells also scaled back guest appearances. He needed some rest. But The Magnificent Ambersons, his second film, went into production on October 28th. In late November, Come Wells on. was named the Goodwill Ambassador to Latin America by Nelson Rockefeller. So year after year. Rockefeller was then the U.S. Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs and a principal stockholder in RKO. Meanwhile, there was an oasis in the desert of his loneliness and boredom. This was a disused tool shed in a forgotten corner of the lower garden. There, Conradin found a haven. He peopled it with ghosts 
with phantoms from his books and from his dreams. And the tool shed boasted two in Then, on December 7th, we interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 104. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we focus on Orson Welles' radio career from Pearl Harbor through the end of Radio's Peak, and pick up where we left off in Breaking Walls, episode 79. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Don Swan's Hooray for Hollywood, a fitting mambo-fevered tune for a man that spent much of the 1940s in the City of Angels. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash thewallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. The Gulf Oil Companies and your good Gulf dealer are proud to present a dramatic picture of this, Our America. Here is your host, Roger Pryor, to tell you about it. Good evening, everyone. We welcome you tonight to one of the most timely programs ever heard on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Our production of Norman Corwin's script, Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. Broadcast at any time, we believe this program would make every American's heart beat a little faster. Make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came today, this program between Americans now becomes an American odyssey. In just a moment, our story will begin. But first, here's Bud Easton. Right. And here's an easy way to change from a pessimist into an optimist. On the evening of December 7, 1941, with the United States reeling from the attacks on Pearl Harbor and Manila, Orson Welles took to the air on CBS in collaboration with Norman Corwin. Corwin was hired by CBS in April of 1938. 
For the next three years, he honed his craft on shows like Words Without Music, Forecast, and The Pursuit of Happiness. Through a series of serendipities, somebody at CBS heard me and thought that I would be an interesting addition to their staff. They engaged me as a director, not knowing that my chief interest was writing. And so I parlayed those talents and became my own producer as well. And in very short time, I was able to latch on to some opportunities that found my programs getting attention in the national publications, Time and other magazines, and there was on my way. When I went to CBS as a director, I began, for the first few months, I directed the work of other people. Mm -hmm. I did some adaptations, a very minor character, more or less learned the network console. In 1941, Corwin was given the task of taking over the famed Columbia Workshop. He wrote and directed 26 plays, today considered some of his best work. The final one was Between Americans. On an evening unlike any prior in American radio history, Corwin tabbed Orson Welles to talk directly to the country. It was the first time they'd worked together. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, listener. Whatever your name may be. Matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens are lifted right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. Among the delegates registering on the first day would be... Me, I'm the delegate from London. Minnesota. I'm in from Dublin, New Hampshire. Flew in this morning from Cairo, Illinois. Huh? Uh, who turned me? Uh, I'm from Canton, Connecticut. I'm from Paris, Texas. I came all the way from Shanghai, West Virginia. Warsaw, Georgia. I'm the delegate representing Moscow, Kentucky. My town is Toronto, Kansas. As for me, Lisbon, Maine. Delegate from Madrid, Alabama reporting. I'm from Stockholm, South Dakota. Drove down this afternoon from Bombay, New York. Hitchhiked here from Baghdad, Florida. All right, delegates, now that you've registered, you may all be seated. Now, that's all the preliminaries there's going to be tonight. We're through with the introductions, the overture, and the official registration. So now we can get down to the text, which is roughly speaking this. Today, particularly, people are thinking about their country pretty hard. Some of them for the first time in their lives. People are wondering where we're headed. Men are being called on to get ready to defend America. A lot of them are thinking in terms of what is there to defend. Well, now, America means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most of them are solid patriots, only they don't know it. They don't have to wear a red and white and blue button in their lapels to prove it. 
They don't have to agree with or even listen to people like this. My fellow citizens, in this great state of Plano and Pantero, we can pick the dog squirtle your taxes. Our great country is cribbly bolted up and can wackle tablewick, and your lagonary roller herring done forever. We got a good hunch most people prefer the quiet kind of speaker. Like the fellow who got up on a platform in a Pennsylvania town one day and said, The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. That was the Gettysburg Address he was referring to. As a matter of fact, he didn't get such good reviews the next morning. Take, for example, the write-up he got in the Harrisburg Patriot. We pass over the silly remarks of the president... For the credit of the nation, we are willing that they shall no more be repeated and thought of. You think that's bad? Listen to what the Chicago Times had to say. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Of course, the rival paper in Chicago took the opposite point of view. Rival papers often do. The remarks of President Lincoln will live among the annals of man. That paper gave it four stars, and they were right. The Gettysburg Address did survive. But that business of calling a president a ham is really something to be proud of. I mean the right to print a piece saying a president makes a sound like dishwater. Nobody dragged the editors off to jail, even if they were wrong. That's important comes under the heading of free press. As soon as anybody starts gagging the press, any press, watch out. Americans don't like that. And by the way, we got a nerve to be calling ourselves Americans all the time when we're really only United Staters. We're a little selfish about that. It's America down there in Chile, too. All the way down the spine of the Andes. If any of you folks are hearing this down around Mexico or... Honduras, or Salvador, or Argentina, or even if you're an Eskimo in the Arctic. We hope you'll overlook our calling ourselves Americans as though we were the only ones in the hemisphere. We do that just because it's so much easier to say than anything else. And also because it sounds so good. By the way, before we leave the subject, what about the original Americans? The Indians? There's a forgotten race for you. How about the Indian on the nickel and the buffalo who roamed the back of the great American jit? Seems a shame. No two ways about it. We have forgotten those 100% Americans who went down to quarantine to meet the Mayflower. We don't see them around in person very much these days. But their ghosts are still with us. Maybe the red men are forgotten. Maybe not. But between you and us, it's said that near Boonesboro, Kentucky, on certain nights in November, by the light of the waning moon, some very peculiar ghost meetings go on in the woods south of the river. Also in certain parts of the Alleghenies, between the hours of sundown and the coming of the morning mist. Yes. If you happen to be listening to this in a car driving along Highway 99 in Wyoming. That man you passed walking down the road a few miles back wasn't a man at all. 
seriously, they were brave people. The Indians. Eight days later, on the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights, Corwin wrote and directed a play called We Hold These Truths. It was simultaneously broadcast on all four major radio networks and boosted by the Armed Forces Radio Service. Sixty million tuned in, and Wells was again prominently featured. Do you think 55 representatives of the American people sat in a hall in New York City, in a drafty hall, and made up articles of freedom? Do you think the congressmen from 13 states made up those freedoms out of their own heads, debated there, deliberated there without assistance, all by themselves, from their own experience? Oh, no. They had much help from many nameless and unknown, from dust in quiet places, from broken bones deep in the earth, deep in forgotten earth, mixed with the empty clay, from bleeding mouths, burnt flesh, cropped ears, from numberless and nameless agonies. The delegates from dungeons, they were there. I said that men were born equal. That is all I said. The delegates from ashes at the bottoms of the stakes, they were there. The king did not approve. The gallows delegates, whose corpses lifted gently in the breeze, they too. We too. We too. The exiled wanderers, the Christians killed for being Christians. Jews for being Jews, the Quakers hanged in Boston town. They made a quorum also. Present. We are present. The murdered men, the lopped off hands, the shattered limbs, the red welts where the whiplash bit into the back. Must you know what they said? Must you know how they argued? Must you be told the evidence? The silent testimony of the rave? Must it be told verbatim? Listen then! <coughs> that was an argument for an amendment. <coughs> that was a speech in favor of an article of freedom. That prayed the passage of a Bill of Rights. How much of all this must be told to be believed? Must it be drawn on diagrams? X marks the spot where decency was last observed. A dotted line shows how the victim staggered. The arrow points to blood. The headsman, he was there in Federal Hall. The man who turned the ratchets on the rack. He sat in the assembly too. Nero was there. Caligula, King Philip, Torquemada, Cotton Mesa, all the tyrants and the martyrs who had gone before. He sat quietly, unseen. 
among the representatives, read from their memoirs, expert testimonies, found their ways into the records and between the lines. All the long and bloody history of fanaticism, murder in the name of God, torture in the name of love, crucifixion, in the name of safety to the crown. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He too sat in the Congress, the mild man with the scars in his hands and feet where the spikes went through. He was a consultant in the business at hand. Had he not died because the rulers of a realm denied free speech? Was he not nailed up on a cross between two thieves because his preachments were considered treason? He, the Son of God, was he not executed over an issue of the rights of man? Make no mistake about it. He was there. He sat beside James Madison and Elbridge Gerry and John Page in Federal Hall. Unseen he was, but voting. The men of Congress were collaborated with they added up the gains and losses and the brave words spoken and the brave songs sung. They weighed the drawn and quartered flesh. They took into account the hemlock and the crucifix, the faggot and garage. And then they framed amendments to the Constitution. Out of the agonies, out of the crisscross scars of all the human race, they made a bill of rights for their own people. Although Orson Welles was still in his mid-twenties, by the end of 1941 he'd influenced a generation of peers like radio actor Byron Kane. We heard that Orson was coming back to do Lady Esther. And his producer, although it was Orson who called all the shots, there was a man called Claire Amstead, who was the producer. And we found out, all of us seasoned radio actors, that if we had to get on the Orson Welles show or to get anything, we had to audition for Claire Amstead. I see Claire Armstead, I knew what he looked like, a big burly man, gray-haired, formidable-looking man, was walking in the CBS three days before the show was to go on the air. We understood that we were going to have auditions, and I walked up to him and said, Mr. Armstead, my name is Byron Kane. I'm a radio actor here in Hollywood, and if possible, I'd like the opportunity for auditioning for you, Mr. Wells. Now, this was Friday. I remember it clearly. It was on a Friday. He said, why don't you write me a letter, tell me, you know, give me a background. 
This was early in Friday, about 11 o'clock in the morning. I sent it to the NW Air Agency. I says, okay, thank you very much. And away he went. About five minutes later, up the steps, and out from Sunset Boulevard comes Hans. And I said, uh, hey, I just saw Claire Armstead. He says, write him a letter. That's how you audition for him. He says, write him a letter. Now this Hans was way better known than I was in those days, too, because he had started real early. And from the start, he was so prominent, so colorful. Now the show was going on on Tuesday. I went home and I immediately wrote the letter by one o'clock Friday afternoon, and I dropped it in the mail. Now don't ask me how this happened, why it happened. Saturday afternoon at one o'clock, I got a phone call from Claire Armstead's office. She said, Mr. Armstead got your letter, and he would like you to come to an audition for Mr. Wells' program, if you can, in Studio Two at CBS at four o'clock. I says, yes, yes, I can. And they, they also check times, are you available if perchance you are chosen, are you available to be on the show Tuesday? I says, yes, I am. I have got a chance to be on audition. Well, so I come into the studio two. It's a little studio where we had an organ. Walk into the studio, open the inner door, get in, and there's standing Hans. He had written a letter. <laughs> we read our piece, a little piece here, piece there. Wells was not there. Amstead was there, and the engineer, and the secretary. It was Amstead who said, uh, okay, fellas, fine, rehearsal is tomorrow. So we're gonna be, we're gonna work with Orson Welles. Well, the next day, we showed up, and it was the almanac, it was called Lady Esther Almanac, and you had episodic things, maybe seven minutes of a show about this, and then the commercial, and seven minutes in the show about this, and seven minutes show about this. We came around, read around the first, read around the table, and it was only Hans and myself. And Orson said, gentlemen, you two are the most fantastic actors I've ever met. Now, whether it was his bravura or his expanse at the moment to say that, we didn't care, nor did we even think. We accepted it. <laughs> and of course, we were thrilled to death. We were in such awe of Wells, even in those days, he was no more than 25. We were on every show that he ever did in Hollywood from then on. With the United States gearing up for the war, Orson Welles spent Christmas of 1941 in Los Angeles. On December 20th, he received a telegram from the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. To promote greater Pan-Americanism, he was being sent by RKO to Rio de Janeiro. Welles was to make a film showcasing Carnival. This is Orson Welles, bringing you another radio show for Lady Esther. Tonight we present Miss Rita Hayward. In There Are Frenchmen and Frenchmen, a not very high comedy dealing with two rather closely related institutions, love and wrestling. Lovers will find nothing in the story. Nine days later on December 29th, Come with me. Rita Hayward was guest star in the Lady Esther program. It was the first time they met. But this one was beautiful. She was a goddess straight from the bronze coin of ancient Greece. You address me. Sure. Get in the sedan. I'm going to drive you. Thank you. Mademoiselle is very young to be a dean. Oh, I'm just pinch hitting while the regular dean is away. My real job is instructor in physical education. First, you must see our new golf course. Although Wells had been divorced once before and was in a relationship with Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio, 
He later said it was love at first sight. Touch a mallet. Ride? Uh, no. Row? No. Neither. Swim? No. Run? No. Walk? Fence? Wrestle? None of them. Stop shaking your head. What do you do? I read. Haven't you any interest in sport? I have never witnessed any sort of athletic game. I hope never to do so. <clears throat> she looked at me as if I were a worm she had found in her salad. All the time her said that. Say, I saw your friend recently, Orson Welles. Oh, yes. You were, in, yes. you were in Magnuson Amberson's and Citizen Kane. We yes. talked about that once on the, on the show. Well, I worked with Orson for 17 years. In the Mercury Theater. Yes. When he made the films, was he a perfectionist? Did he do things over and over? Was he meticulous? Or did he just have a kind of freewheeling way of getting it right the first no, time? No, The Ambersons, literature's most fascinating family, brought to the screen There was a scene in Magnuson Ambersons that was by the boiler scene. It was a very hysterical scene, and I think I went through about three or four rooms with it. And of course, we never cut, we never stopped the camera because the camera was on little tracks, and it would stop for a close-up, or it would stop for a tight two, or it's, you know, and it followed the actor, it was the audience. And it was very, very difficult. We didn't know too much about the technique of movie making. And I remember this particular part that I was doing, he said to me, now I want you to play it like a little girl. And of course that wasn't the characterization that I had made up my mind to do at all. The second time he said, I want you to play it like an insane woman. And then the next time he said, now I want you to play it like she's absolutely inebriated. And I played it that way. And again, he said, now I want you to play without absolutely, just a, an absolutely vacuous mind. And by the time I thought to myself, what in the world does he want? After about the fifth time, I began to realize what he wanted. And I did it 11 times, different characterizations. And then the 12th time, after he was absolutely satisfied with the technical part of it, he said to me, now play it. And it had a little bit of the hysteria, it had a little bit of the insanity, it had a little bit of the little girl, and he had mixed it all up in my mind so that the characterization that I played had a little bit of all of these, and it was terribly exciting. Finally, Isabel's boy, young George, played by Tim Holt, had strong, impetuous, and arrogant air to the splendor of the I wrote the script partly on King Vita's yacht off Catalina, the rest of it, in Mexico. Then we rehearsed it, longer than I've ever rehearsed anything, because it was a relatively small cast. Everybody, we worked very hard for, I think we were five weeks rehearsing, not on set or anything, no movement, just rehearsing. And then we recorded every scene so that we remembered what we thought about it, so that when you came on the set there was the way it ought, we had decided it ought to sound even if we were going to change it. Oh, lives. that's great. And I've done that since a lot. It but save a lot of time. It actually. does, uh, but also it gives you new ideas. You see what's wrong and everything. It's kind of a preview. You come fresh after a week or two and hear a new camera work moved very slowly. Let's put it that way. In fact, the picture took longer to shoot than any picture I've ever done instead of shorter as it was planned. Mm -hmm.
1942 began, Wells was in production with the Magnificent Ambersons, shot at RKO's Gower Street Studios in Los Angeles. The interior set walls could be adjusted to allow for continuous takes. Location shooting took place at Big Bear Lake and the San Bernardino National Forest. East LA snow scenes were shot at the ice house of the Union Ice Company downtown. The film went over budget by 20%. Wells directed but did not star. Were you deliberately looking for something in which you wouldn't appear? Yes. Why was that? I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I was obsessed in my hot youth with the idea that I would not be a star. I would only incidentally play great roles. Now, there's no such thing as incidentally playing great roles. And I was in a position to promote myself as a star. And I should have. I should have gone back to New York and played Hamlet. And as long as it was going, I didn't. I had this idea that I wanted to be known as a director. That was it. I loved Ambersons. Point of Ambersons. Everything that is any good in it is that part of it which was really just a preparation for the decay of the Ambersons. It was thought by everybody in Hollywood while I was in South America that it was too downbeat, famous Hollywood word at the time, downbeat. So it was all taken out, but it was the purpose of the movie was to see how they all slid downhill, you see, in one way or another. After production wrapped, Wells flew to Brazil. But in the States, the magnificent Amberson screened poorly. And Wells had negotiated away his right to the final cut. Film editor Robert Wise remembered that time. He was not up here when we previewed the film. After we got it all finished, uh, we had sent him a print, and he had some changes he wanted made, which we made, but then we took the picture out for preview. The audience just wouldn't sit still for it. They laughed at it left at some of the performances, they walked out in droves, and it was as disastrous a preview as you could possibly imagine. And the studio was very naturally very upset. They had a lot of money in this film, and they wanted to get it out. So Jack Moss, who was his man here, is the social producer on the film, and I were kind of caught in the middle between Orson and his, his inability to come up here and do anything about it, but still wanting a voice in it, and the studio, on the other hand, who was wanting to get something done with this film that uh, would allow him to release it. In 1942, RKO underwent major changes. Nelson Rockefeller left its board of directors, and studio president George Schaefer resigned. The new brass took control of Ambersons. Any Wells' attempt to protect his version ultimately failed. The basic intention of the picture was to make this golden world and then show the, what it turns into. And what is left of the picture is only the golden world and a kind of arbitrary uh, ringing down of the curtain by a series of, of clumsy, quick devices. Because the bad black world that came was just too much for people at that time, and I wasn't there to be able to fight for it. I remember that even Joe Cotton wrote me in South America and says, you have no idea now that we've seen the whole picture together with an audience, how terrifying and frightening the last part of the picture is. It's just too much for the audience. So that uh, even those people who had my interest and I felt that I'd gone too far, I don't believe I had. That was what I wanted to do. It was a very tough picture. It's still in some ways. I can think of it as, uh, as in many ways what I like best of anything I've done, but it completely absent from it is the thing that would have been the, its whole point. 
In the spring, RKO cut more than 40 minutes and changed the ending. It broke significantly with the film's serious tone, but also stayed true to the ending of the novel. Bernard Herrmann's score was heavily edited. When RKO cut more than half from the soundtrack, Herrmann severed ties with the film and promised legal action if his name wasn't removed from the credits. I would have to say this, that I think from a purely artistic point of view, purely that, it was probably a better film in its entirety. From a film bus standpoint, I don't think there's any question there. But we are faced with the realities of the other part of it. And I think the fact that the film has come down through the years in its own right is somewhat of a minor, if not more than that, classic, means that we didn't really bastardize it completely. Ultimately, the Magnificent Ambersons lost RKO $620,000. Meanwhile in Brazil, Wells worked on It's All True. He'd conceived it as an omnibus film mixing documentary and fiction, comprising several stories about Pan-American culture from the Arctic to Tierra del Fuego. While in Rio de Janeiro, Wells planned to shoot Carnival and Jangadeiros, or Four Men on a Raft. In return for all profits, RKO was to put up $1.2 million for the film. As co-producer of the project, the OCIAA guaranteed 300 grand against any losses RKO might incur. There was no time to prepare a script. It wasn't possible until Wells arrived. All parties understood this and agreed. As an emissary of the U.S. government, Wells had to give up the Lady Esther show, and he received no salary. But tensions were boiling with RKO because of ambassadors. Wells ignored their phone calls and shot what he wanted. He was bitter and felt the new board of directors was ignorant and going out of their way to make sure his projects failed. It's gone. The whole end of it. The whole uh, actual plot was changed. Do you ever get over something like that? Not really. You don't. You don't. But you see, I was in terrible trouble then because I was sent to South America by Nelson Rockefeller and Jacques Whitney. I was told that it was my patriotic duty to go and spend a million dollars shooting the carnival in Rio. Now, I don't like things like carnivals and Mardi Gras and all that, but they put it to me that it would be a real contribution to inter-American affairs in the Latin American world and so on. So without a salary, but with a budget of a million dollars, I was sent to Rio to make up a movie about the carnival. But in the meantime, RKO is now a new government, and they asked to see the rushes of what I'm doing in South America. And they see a lot of people, black people. And the reaction is, he's just shooting a lot of jigaboos jumping up and down. They didn't even hear the samba music because it hadn't been synced up. RKO was expecting stately and efficient vignettes. They instead received footage of wild interracial gatherings of common people. From the studio's point of view, releasing this to the U.S. public was dangerous and reckless. So I was fired from RKO. They made a great publicity point of the fact that I had gone to South America without a script and thrown all this money away. 
I never recovered from that attack. So the fact that they had also, they had promised me when I went to South America that they would send a moviola and cutters to me and that I would finish the cutting of Ambersons there. They never did. They cut it themselves. So they destroyed Ambersons and the picture itself destroyed me. I didn't get a job as a director for years afterwards. Orson Welles returned to the United States on August 22, 1942, after more than six months in South America. He sought to continue the project elsewhere, managing to purchase some of the footage. But Welles eventually had to relinquish ownership back to RKO. He couldn't afford to pay the storage costs. It occurred to me that the origins of Samba lay in voodoo ceremonies, particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains, which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group, this doctor. An advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it. And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive, that he and his group took it very badly. And I said I was most sorry about it myself. I did want to finish the film, and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that the voodoo ceremony must continue. And I was called away to the telephone again, left the doctor in my office, had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to finish since so much effort had gone into it. And I was pleading my cause for some time, praying that we would be able to. And I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone, having been told that the deal was completely off, and that on my desk, in a script of the film, was a long steel needle it had been driven entirely through the script, and to the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. While some of the footage shot for It's All True was repurposed, approximately 200,000 feet of Technicolor nitrate negative, most of it for the Carnival episode was later dumped into the Pacific Ocean.
Lord, have mercy on us all. On the frigid, blustery night of December 16, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history sweeps through Manhattan. Everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street, at that time the city's chief merchant district and the one with the highest property value, turns to rubble. The fire causes the modern equivalent of a half billion dollars in damages, and the official investigation finds an exploded gas pipe near a lit coal stove in the offices of Comstock and Andrews to be the culprit. No public blame is ever assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident? Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. The minute you have a gangster who has to perform a certain function in a melodrama, you're, you're, you're obliged to try and find something about him that doesn't make him identical with every other gangster in every other melodrama. Just as simple as that. There are two radio series produced in conjunction with Orson Welles' Pan American Position. The first was called Ceiling Unlimited and focused specifically on aviation history and current affairs. It was sponsored by Lockheed and Vega Aircraft and aired on CBS beginning Monday, November 9, 1942. The second was called Hello Americans. It sought to foster Pan-Americanism by sharing first-hand stories. It began airing Sunday, November 15, 1942 on CBS. Carmen Miranda was the first guest. The opening show was built around Samba. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in a special series of broadcasts about the other Americas. This story, The Bad Will Ambassador, aired on December 27th. Hello, Americans. This is Orson Welles. It's two days after Christmas and a Sunday night at that. Do you feel as though your belt were trying to get a half Nelson on your waistline? Are you wondering where somebody who gave you something got it so you can take it back and exchange it for something you wanted instead? Has somebody in your household been heard to remark that it's been a nice Christmas, but she's glad it's over? Is your tree starting to shed? Yes? Yes. I don't care how many eggnogs you didn't have. You've got that Christmas hangover. Well, so have we. The incidents in the Mercury Theater of package-tying thumb... Christmas tree decorating, back strain, and shopper's feet is just as great as in your family. 
Frankly, the script for this broadcast didn't exist until last night. We were all sitting around staring at each other, our eyes glazed with Christmas cheer, numbly wondering how to get started. And there was a knock at the door. That's the best way I know to start a story. We won't stop for sound effects because you can imagine it. But uh, knock on the door. Somebody opened it and in came Mr. Martin Stone. Mr. Stone is a big man and his mouth had a place in it for a cigar, but the cigar wasn't there. He introduced himself and we gave him a drink and he told us this story. Now we're going to try to tell it to you the way we heard it. Story needs a name, so we'll call this one The Bad Will Ambassador. Stone, Martin Stone. Thanks, don't mind if I do. I'm an American representative of an export house with branches all over South America, Central America, Brazil, the Argentine, Venezuela, Peru, Puerto Rico, Mexico. Business is good, could be better, but... Well, that's my business, to make it better. I didn't come here to talk about myself, though. I, I want to tell you... I tell you about him. Who? Don't ask me, just... Let me tell you what happened. Can't even say exactly what he looked like. Smallish, yet he wasn't so small. He was... Wasn't young. He wasn't old either. Oh, his voice. It was soft. Like a soft breeze. The kind of voice that makes you think of your own voice. Like you're talking too loud or too hard. Still don't know his name. I looked it up, but wasn't in there. Guess it doesn't matter. Met him first in Buenos Aires about ten days ago. I had everything planned. Eight days to finish up my business in South America and get back home in time for Christmas and J.L.'s sales rally. Got to plan things if you want to get them done. Yeah, reservations on Pan American right through from Argentina to New York City. Uh, here, boy, grab these bags and weigh them. That's my plane. Yes, sir. Well, Senor Stone... We'd given you up for good. Never give up Martin Stone till the plane leaves the ground. Yes, senor. Never missed a uh... plane or a train in my life. No use putting that on the scales. Weighs 39 pounds and 14 ounces, exactly. Well, what's wrong? Plane hasn't left, has it? Uh, Mr. Stone, uh, you see, we didn't think you were coming. And someone who has to get to Rio de Janeiro by tonight, well, we gave him your seat. Your what? Oh, we would not have done it, Mr. Stone, but... He is going to have Christmas with his family. I know. He's only nine years old, sir, and if he does not go on this plane, he will lose an entire... Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me you want me to give up my seat? Of course not, Mr. Stone, if you do not wish to. We told the dispatcher he is to take the little boy and his luggage off the plane. It will take only a moment. Well, naturally, I hate to upset the youngster's plans, but after all, I got a little fellow of my own who's harder just about break if his daddy isn't back home for Christmas. Oh, that's quite all right, Mr. Stone. Is that the youngster there? Yes, Mr. Stone. Uh, hi there, youngster. Uh, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you. He understand English? No, Mr. Stone. He speaks only Spanish and Portuguese. Well, he's got plenty of time to get an education. Here, young man, you take this and buy yourself a pocket knife or a football or anything you want. Come on, won't bite you. Hey, what's wrong? 
That's when I first saw him. Standing there. Right in front of me. You say he's very young and he would not understand. Yeah. This isn't my responsibility. Awful lot of kids in the world. Still, a man does hate to disappoint a kid, naturally. Naturally. Especially during the Christmas season. It's a pity you will miss the Argentine Navidad. Yeah, yes, yes. Very interesting native customs, aren't there? I don't know. Give me Christmas back home in the States. My name's Stone. Uh, Indestructible Toys and Novelties. Here's my card. Leaving on this plane? No, I'm not. Would you believe it? They don't even have Santa Claus in this country. Uh, you're not an Argentinian, are you? No, I'm not. Always got to be careful. Got to use tact down here in these countries. Never know who you're talking to. Like I was saying, now, what's Christmas without Santa Claus? No Santa, no presents, no presents, no fun. Mr. Stone, here in the Argentine, the Christmas is very serious to them. Yeah, but what about the kids, Mr. Senor, I didn't catch the name. Senor, that is enough. Glad to know you. Merry Christmas. Have a cigar. Say, I'm sorry I still didn't get that name. Thank you, no. Not at the moment. Uh, you know how it is. So many strange names down here. Just Senor. Uh, yeah, but Senor what? In the United States, it is Mr. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Mr. and Senor are the same thing. That's right. Uh... What are we talking about? Oh, yes, yeah, kids. Christmas and kids. Kids, yeah. I've got kids of my own and toys. Listen, we've got a line of toys. Yeah, the Argentine, they have a gift day. That's what I say. What can a kid get out of Christmas without Christmas presents? La adoración de los reyes. Beg your pardon? Los reyes are the three kings. Oh, yes. Oh, sure. They... Yes, yeah, the wise men of the camel. Sure, the adoration of the king. Somebody is telling me. Now, you take Ecuador. Up there, they got a whole different idea. Oh, I've been there during past Sure. Time. Ecuadorians do it right. Regular Christmas trees, presents, kids hang up their stockings, just like in the States. And say, in Colombia, you know what the kids believe? Huh? They believe that Jesus himself brings them their gifts on Christmas Eve. Imagine that. And then there's Peru. Oh, I've been in Peru for Great Christmas. Country. In every home, they make a little altar. Wonderful possibilities. I, I was in Lima once myself. Midnight mass. Interesting. Kids all cleaned up bright as a dollar. Carry whistles and things to imitate the calls of animals and birds. I got a real boot out of it. You in business, senor? Well, after a fashion. Oh, what's your line? Uh, I'm afraid my line is not so popular. Salesmanship, senor, that's what does it. You gotta sell these people, any people. Put a little chocolate on the pill. They'll eat it. And after the chocolate wears off? That was the first time I met him. I wished him a Merry Christmas and left him standing there. <laughs> to Rio at 4.25. Took a taxi to the hotel. Good night, eh, Senor Stone. Come away. Uh, oh, that's right. Hey, we receive your wire, Senor Stone. Your room is prepared for you. Bright people, these Brazilians. They know the answer. Speak English. Got an army. Yeah. Tell the boys uh, to take my... You were standing there. 
senor. Stand there in the lobby with a smile on his face, Bill. He's been waiting for me. It has always been true, but never more true than it is right now. The pictures you enjoy most are based on the most widely read novels. Recall Grapes of Wrath, Gone with the Wind, How Green Was My Valley, he is, he was marvelous because he never played the obvious. He never directed, obviously. He always directed in some strange or black way that you thought, well, that isn't right at all. But if you put your career in his hands, he loved to mold you the way he wanted. Whatever happens, do not open a door. Hide a door. And it was always much better than you could do yourself. And of course, I love him dearly because he was very, very great to me. He was very kind to me. And he had great confidence in everything that I would do. Would you there like was to work with him again? If you oh, should. adore to. Yeah. What's that doing here? No one is allowed up here. Understand? No one. Get thee down. Get thee down. Jane, strange. Almost unearthly thing. You that I love is my own flesh. Don't mock me. I feel rough for blush. It's you I want. Answer me, Jane, quickly. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Say it, Jane. Say it. I want to read your face. Read quickly. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. I don't think that anybody, a comedian or an actor of any kind, says to himself at any time, I think I'm going to develop a style. I don't think he would know how to do that. I think you just find it. Innately, there's something that you do that you find out works for you. Some comedians talk very fast. They go from one joke to another joke to another joke, maybe topical humor. Now, I discovered when I first started to talk on the stage that that would not have been my style. My style was to talk on a subject and stay on the subject. Hey, it's Miss Harrington, Mr. Wells' secretary. Hello, Miss Harrington. Hello, Dennis. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, slugger. <laughs> What an odd bed sheet. It has blue eyes. This is me. <laughs> this is me. I'm pale. You certainly are. I have news for you, Mr. Benny. Mr. Wells is about to pay you a visit. Orson? Orson's coming here to visit me? Yes. He'll be here shortly. Rochester, I want this room tidied up at once. Yes, Miss Harrington. I want a chair placed beside the bed. Yes, Miss Harrington. And put an X on Mr. Betty's forehead so Mr. Wells can spot him immediately. <laughs> now, look, I, I'm not that pale. Now, Miss Harrington, would you mind sitting over there in the corner? We were just starting to rehearse our program. Rehearse without the master? Mr. Wells won't like it. Nuts to Mr. Wells. <laughs> I know just how you feel, Daddy. <laughs> Well, I'll be darned. She's human. Attention, everybody. 
Mr. Wells is about to make his entrance. Mr. Wells, Mr. Wells, come in. In early 1943, Orson Welles was in production alongside Joan Fontaine with 20th Century Fox for Jane Eyre. This is Orson Welles. Although Welles enjoyed acting for the screen, he preferred live radio. In March, when Jack Benny took ill with pneumonia, Welles filled in as host of the Jack Benny program. Gee, you'd think he was Frank Remley or something, the way they're jumping around here. Jack returns on April 11th, but Orson isn't quite ready to let go. Well, Mary, it's nice to see you. How's Jack feeling today? I feel well enough to do my broadcast, brother. Wasn't that Jack's voice? Jack, where are you? Right here. They forgot to mark me. <laughs> Look, can't you see my big blue eyes? Oh, yes, they're gorgeous. Thank you. But you're so pale, Jack. Well, you see, Orson, it's been so cloudy lately, I haven't been able to get any sun. I sit out in my backyard every day, but nothing happens. I'll fix that. Miss Harrington, take a note. Yes, Mr. Wells. Get in touch with the Weather Bureau. The sun must shine tomorrow. <laughs> yes, Mr. Wells. See what I mean, Daddy? Hey, maybe he can do it. Oh, by the way, Jack, I noticed a lot of orange peels hanging on your clothesline. Is that to ward off evil spirits? No, Mr. Billy, see, my border was making some juice. Now, if you'll excuse us for a few minutes, Orson, we'll go ahead with our rehearsal. Oh, I certainly don't mind if I stay and watch, do you? No, 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 not at all. <clears throat> now, as I was saying, fellas, Don introduces me, then I come on... Uh, pardon me, there doesn't seem to be a chair here. What? No chair? Mr. Wells doesn't have a chair. Oh, my goodness. Here, Orson, take mine. No, Orson, take my chair. Take mine. It's got a pretty cushion on it. Take my chair, Orson. It's peachy. Here, take the bed. <laughs> I'll go out and hang on the clothesline. <laughs> For heaven's sake. Now, let's get going with this rehearsal whether Mr. Wells is standing, sitting, or floating around the room. Now, the first thing to do is... Orson, come down here! <laughs> he knows more magic... Now, the, the first thing to do is run over the dialogue. Run over the dialogue? Oh, no, that'll never do. No, 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 no. What do you mean, no, 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 Comedy, Jack, should never be rehearsed. Repetition destroys its sparkle and spontaneity. But also... The important look, elements of a variety program are the songs and music. Look, now, Orson, Dennis, yeah. I want you to run over your song so we can get an idea of its length. Now, wait a minute, Orson. This rehearsal is my business. You're not even going to be on the show. I know, but I shall be listening. It's about time we listeners had something to say. Sing, Dennis. <laughs> I see what you mean, sister. we thought was going to last. We never framed anything. We never started anything that we said. For instance, I've never gone to my writers and they never went to me. And it came to me and said, let's make you a stingy character. Let's make Love and Bloom your theme song. Let's have a feud between you and Fred Allen. See, if we'd have framed all of that ahead of time, it would have never worked out. It always started by an accident. By accident, we wrote a couple of stingy jokes. And then they got big laughs, so we each week or every third week, 
we would put in a few stingy jokes, and before I knew it, I was a stingy man. You know the famous story that uh, George Burns did to Jack Benny? It had to do with Jeanette McDonald, did it not, Freddie? Well, I don't know it. It's a wonderful story, and it shows you how you can psych somebody out. Apparently, uh, Jeanette McDonald and her husband threw lovely parties, but inevitably, before the evening was over, somebody would ask Jeanette McDonald to sing. Which and if she they would. didn't... And if they didn't... Uh, she had somebody hired who would... Well, you know, because she wanted to sing. <laughs> so George used to say to Jack Benny, three days before the party, he'd say, Jack... When Jeanette McDonald gets up to sing at the party, don't laugh. It would be very embarrassing. <laughs> He'd call him the next day. Jack, you know, somebody's going to ask Jeanette to sing. Would be very, I would be very embarrassed if you laugh while she... <laughs> sure enough, so they're at the party and somebody says, Jeanette, would you sing a song? And Jack goes right out. It was all over. He was... Physically unable not to explode with laughter. I know that's true, as it sounds like George for one he was, thing. Yeah, he was, and, and Jack also was, you could get him quicker than anybody who ever lived. Was a great patsy for George. Oh, he was the, one of the only great comedians who really enjoyed other comedians. Right, he did. Do you think it'll do for the program? Well, Dennis, I think Mr. Benny should answer that question. After all, he's running a show this week. Darn right I am. Your song was swell, Dennis, but it's a little long. I want you to cut half a minute out cut of it. Cut half a minute? Cut of that beautiful ballad would ruin it. Might have said. Uh... <laughs> Tell you what, Dennis, I want you to add a half a minute add. to it. Add? You want him to add half a minute and destroy its musical climax? I never thought of that. I didn't... Uh, leave it alone, Dennis. Leave it alone! You want him to leave it alone and... Now, wait a minute, Oris. Whoa, whoa, Orson? Orson. <laughs> took him ten years to build up the name Orson Welles. I made it Oris in one second. <laughs> Look at Orson. What, what the heck do you want? I wish I knew. So do I. Look, Orson, it's getting you know, late. You mind? You know. <laughs> Look... Orson, I'm sorry I killed your gag there, really. Or I'm glad, I don't know which. Manuscript here on the table, is it a screenplay? No, that's my autobiography, Orson. I've been working on the story of my life since I've been sick. Hmm, you know? intriguing title, Jack Benny from Rags to Radio. Yes, I, I was going to call it The Loves of Jack Benny, but I haven't done so well. My. <laughs> a thrilling opening. I, Jack Benny, was born on a farm near Waukegan, Illinois, many years ago. It is thrilling, isn't it? It's a great day of great rejoicing on the farm. Chickens were cackling, cows were mooing, hogs were grunting, and father was cockeyed. <laughs> what a celebration. Young Jack Benny, from his very well, earliest days... pardon me days... for interrupting, Orson, but we've got to get finished with our rehearsal. No, 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 this is interesting. Uh, go ahead, Orson. Go ahead. But, Jack, now, I, I, I've got to rehearse the sponsor's message yet. You got to yet? Oh, yes, the sponsor's message. Well, Don, Don, as long as I haven't been on the show for five weeks, I thought we'd concentrate on me. Now, just a minute, Jack. You can't seriously believe that we listeners tune in to the Grape Nuts Flakes program every week just to hear about you. But Orson... Oh, of course not. We want to know how those toasty brown sweeties and nuts little flakes are getting along. But Oswald... We want Orson. to know... <laughs> <laughs> Who 
we want to know if they still... Now, you know I can't louse up the, the sponsors. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I better pronounce the <laughs> We want to know if they still have that multi-rich flavor. And if they... Well, the sponsors? Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> that nightshirt. <laughs> but Austin, after Don delivers his message, can't I talk about myself? Can't I tell people my cold is better? Jack, I wouldn't take any bows on that cold till you're strong enough to have a beautiful nurse. Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell him anyway. Huh? Well, well, and how's my little patient? Uh, shall we take that nasty cast off your leg today? <laughs> Doc, I'm not a cocker spaniel. Look, but as long as you're here, you can give me an aspirin. All this excitement has given me a little headache. An aspirin? Uh, here you are. Thank you. That'll be five cents, please. <laughs> Look, put it on my bill. Now, if I can just swallow the thing. Would you like to grease the track with a little cough medicine, Miss Bennett? <laughs> I don't need any chaser. See, it's down. Say, that was a pretty, pretty big pill. It didn't look like an aspirin to me. Me neither. You neither? <laughs> You're the doctor. Well, you don't have to get so huffy about it. I just happened to give you a sleeping pill by mistake. What? You're lucky. It might have been a dog biscuit. <laughs> a sleeping pill? He, he gave me a sleeping pill. Gosh, I can't go to sleep. I got a... I got a show to do today. Remember, Don, you introduce me, and I'll come on and say... I'll say... Well, Orson, looks like you'll have to do the show today. I'll be glad to, Mary. Now, come on, everybody. Let him sleep. <laughs> Those pills are wonderful. I'm headed for Central Avenue. I came back for the cough medicine, folks. Homemaker, then you're a member of the WIN, W-I-N-S, Women in National Service. And one of your big jobs is keeping the family well-fed in spite of wartime food restrictions. Well, your job will be a lot easier. Your kind indulgence, a miracle of the ancient East. With the fee received from Jane Eyre, he approached the War Assistance League of Southern California. His proposal, a big top spectacle, part circus, part magic show. Wells would be magician and director. Fiance Rita Hayworth was to be Wells' chief assistant, and Joseph Cotton would co-produce. We should like the assistance of two able-bodied, open-minded, clean-living young gentlemen to assist us in sewing Marlena Dietrich in half. It would be called the Mercury Wonder Show. Proceeds went to the War Assistance League, and servicemen entered free. The show rehearsed for 17 weeks. Wells tested almost 20 opening acts before he was satisfied. In May, just before previews began, Wells was declared 4F, unfit for military service. By June, the Mercury Wonder Show cast had grown to 31 people. 
Wells called it the biggest magic show on Earth. He put 40 grand into production, and MGM provided a Hollywood lot. My next selection. The Mercury Wonder Show debuted on August 3rd, 1943. But after the first night, head of Columbia Pictures Harry Cohn forbade Rita Hayworth from continuing. I'm sorry, Marlena, this can't be rehearsed. This is one trick you can't repeat. She was busy filming CoverGirl and would have breached her contract if she continued. Wells brought in Marlene Dietrich. Well, she's uh, the most loyal friend that anybody could ever ask for. Her, her loyalty is uh, ferocious. Her professionalism is impeccable. She has a marvelous sense of humor. She was one of the all-time glamour people. And we did our magic show together, you know, for a long time. So we had a, not only a long friendship, but also a long professional association. A portion of the stage show was included in the 1944 variety film Follow the Boys. The segment was directed by Wells, and he received no credit. Mm -hmm. Orson didn't. Orson could rhyme beautifully if he didn't have to work, uh, think about the treasury as far as that's concerned. I remember <laughs> one time we were, we were doing the Wonder Show. Did he ever tell you about the Wonder Show that he did, the Magic, the magic show. show? Well, I played the Calliope outside and dressed all of the people and packed all the pigeons and all that kind of thing backstage. Yeah. And at the very end, he called the meeting to order because, because Joe Cotton and Orson and I were the organizers of the Mercury Theater. Joe was president, I was vice president, and Orson was treasurer. And there was never any money in the treasury. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, Orson said, you know, we're $45,000 in the hole. And I thought of all the things that I was going to be sued for, you know, and I, oh, I was frantic. And it just so happened that Universal had a segment about a magician. I said, take it, Orson, take it and ask for $45,000 and we'll get out of the hole. Which he did, and he got $45,000 and we were out of debt. But see, Orson was like that. Thinking. Things that he that was paid for, he put right back into his work. Orson? Mm -hmm. How do I know these are my legs? Have no fear. I will hypnotize her, and she'll know. The Wells segment in Follow the Boys was initially to be shot in four days, but Wells stretched filming to make sure the cast got extra pay. The Mercury Wonder Show was also broadcast over KMDR. The makers of Mobile Gas and Mobile Oil bring you Orson Welles. Good evening, good evening everybody This is Orson Welles Tonight the Mercury Wonder Show is pitching its tents At the Los Angeles Port of Embarkation in Wilmington And right here I'm sorry to have to make this announcement uh, But the guest star we originally planned to have with us tonight Just wasn't available at this time So we had to take somebody else I know this is a big disappointment to you, but it just couldn't be helped. So appearing with us tonight instead of Bela Lugosi is Lana Turner. Please. Thanks for taking it like this. You fellas are really good sports. Well, I know why you feel this way about Lana. I guess you've heard what a good job she's been doing playing all the army camps. And not only just the big ones. Last week, Lana played a camp so small... The CO was an acting PFC. 
We had a nice trip. We had a nice trip coming down here to the camp tonight. The officers were swell, particularly Colonel Herbert. We were very flattered. We've never had a colonel come to Hollywood to escort us to the camp before. Of course, we've never had Lana Turner on the program before. I sat in the front of the car, and the colonel sat in the back next to Lana. It's the first time I've ever seen a colonel with barbecued eagles. Just in a minute, we're going to bring you one of our regular Mercury G.I. fables, a little something starring the Metro-Golden-Mayor somebody, Miss Lana Turner, plus the celebrated Private Mulva Hill of See Here Private Hargrove, Dr. Keenan Wynn. But first, who's here but Johnny McIntyre? Well, here it is, folks. Sound Man's Holiday, or the case of the Cranky Crank Kings. Listen. The car goes limping along the road. This episode featured Lana Turner, but it was Wells' femme fatale fiancé from Brooklyn that he was most interested in. Do you remember how you first saw her? Or oh, certainly, in a full page in Life magazine. I was in South America, and I, I saw that picture and vowed that uh, I was going to see that girl. It was awfully hard to get her on the phone. Hmm. Did you also vow that you would marry her? Yeah, and we were a long time together. I think I was lucky enough to be with her longer than any of the other men in her life. She is a dear person, and she was a wonderful wife and an extraordinary girl in every way. And I've never heard I've never heard anybody who sounds like an enemy or she doesn't have them. At intermission on September 7, 1943, Hal Stiles interviewed the Wonder Show audience and cast including Wells and Rita Hayworth. They were married earlier that day. Himself, Orson the Magnificent, will you step to the microphone for just a moment and tell us, first of all, why are you just walking out on us, so to speak? Walking out on you? Walking out is not a fair way to describe the situation. I'm a man who's just been married. And would you mind uh, telling us uh, uh, who you've been married to? (laughs) There she is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the lovely, incomparable, the one and only Rita Hayworth, who today became the very blushing and very charming bride of Orson Welles. Rita, will you just say hello? Uh, Hello. (laughs) I'm... (laughs) No. No, wait. I am... uh, I was... No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It can't end as quickly as all that. I know I can appreciate that uh, a marriage has taken place, but uh, after all, we uh, we do have some listeners. We want... uh, uh, What do you think of Orson? Oh, shut What do I think I'm of my husband? Oh! <laughs> well, at any rate, this is truly a wonderful show, and I know that you uh, played a very important part in it until uh, Marlene Dietrich very kindly took your place, but I can appreciate now the reason for this. Uh, there must have been a very, very important reason. Now I want to bring, we just have a moment or two, I want to bring Marlene Dietrich to the microphone and ask her whether or not, uh, well, do you enjoy the part that you've been playing in the show? I love it. Uh-huh. And uh, are you sort of sorry to see it to sort of uh, come to a rather hasty conclusion? Oh, I don't think we will close. Uh-huh. Well, that's very good. Austin applauds that. Maybe when he returns from Washington, uh, he will be uh, very happy to uh, see that the thing continues. Personally, I hate to see the show end because it's been a wonderful show, as all of the people brought to the microphone thus far have been able to so very volubly testify. Uh, Marlena, uh, did you, uh, uh, well... Uh, I don't know how to say it, but this uh, mind-reading demonstration you gave is really uh, very unusual. Did you uh, sort of... Have you been doing things like that all your life? Oh, yes, all my life. Ah, uh-huh. you enjoy doing the work. Yes, I love it, too. Ah, uh-huh. well, just as Orson said, the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter. Now, uh, 
Uh, Orson, before we sign off, and I don't know just how much time we do have left here, we've got time enough, he says. Uh, tell me, what uh, prompted you to, uh, well, uh, present this show? Well, the Mercury is not uh, accomplished at singing and dancing and telling jokes, so we tried to think of something that would hold the attention for an hour and a half or two hours, and this is the best we could do. Magic. It uh, gives us a peg to hang our jokes on and a chance to show uh, the men in service somebody as beautiful as Marlena Dietrich and a, uh, an opportunity for uh, some bright music and a few gags, and that's about it. Due to her studio issues with Columbia, Hayworth kept the marriage a secret until it was too late for Harry Cohn to stop her. Fiery Latin temper? Well, she's half gypsy, you know. She never got mad at me once, but she used to throw the stuff around the house a little bit when she'd think about Harry Cohen. The head. <laughs> the head of the studio. Yes. Yeah. We must remember that he got the biggest funeral that anybody ever had in Hollywood, biggest turnout. Right. And somebody said to Billy Wilder, why are there so many people here at Harry Cohen's funeral? And he said, well, give the people what they want. Wells remarked that the Mercury Wonder Show had been performed for over 48,000 members of the U.S. Armed Forces. It closed up shop two days later on September 9th. Dramatically, I don't think there's any medium better. First of all, it did what television doesn't do. It made people listen and pay attention because as we are talking, the great majority of our public may well be wandering about the room or up to something else. <laughs> but well, if it's on a, if radio, they couldn't follow it at all unless they were really following it. That's true, and the imagination really had to take over. That's why a lot of things on television they can never do as well. For example, I don't think on a television show they could do a horror or mystery type of thing no, as well. No, because your own imagination would do it. Because they can't create those special effects that's in the mind all the time when you hear it. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. From Hollywood, we bring you a star, Mr. Orson Welles, who this evening begins a four-week engagement as guest of these proceedings. In the interest of prime suspense, Mr. Welles and the producer of this series have scheduled four radio stories, which they feel are particularly distinguished in our chosen field. The first of these is... The most dangerous game by Richard Gunn. Back in 1935, a teenage Orson Welles got an early radio job on the March of Time from William Spear. In late 1943, Spear was at the helm of suspense on CBS. That September 23rd, Welles began a month-long partnership with Spear, starring in four consecutive episodes. Kill him. It's him or me. And I'm going to do my best to make it him. 
Well, maybe it sounds crazy to you. I guess it does. It would have sounded crazy to me a few days ago when I was with Whitney on the yacht. I was on a pleasure trip. <laughs> a pleasure trip? How were I, how could I or anyone realize then the horror and torment I was to go through? How was I to know of Yvonne and the death swamp and the hounds? How was I to know of Zaroff? Think of it. It was only four nights ago that the ship went down. We'd been talking about this island, Ship Trap Island, Whitney said it was called on the charts. I was sleepy and started on down below to turn in. I was mixing myself a nightcap when I looked up and saw it. A tremendous reef racing at us out of the fog. I screamed out a warning, but it was too late. We were right upon it. safe out on the prowl, but the force of the explosion hurled me into the blood-warm waters. Terrified at the suddenness and surprise, my stomach weak and sick at the thought of the others. The sea was eddying furiously around the sinking remnants of the ship, and a certain cool-headedness came to me and made me swim desperately away, or I might not have lived to go through the horror which was soon to come. I struck out to the right in the direction of the island about which Whitney had been telling me. I had no recollection of how long I swam... But all at once I heard the muttering and growling of the sea breaking on the rocky shore. With my remaining strength, I dragged myself from the swirling waters. All in, gasping, my hands raw, I at last reached a flat place at the top. I flung myself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of my life. When I awoke, I was in a strange place, having no idea how I had done it. Our friend seems to be awakening. I... Where, where is this? Where am I? Do not Where's be alarmed, it? my friend. My man Ivan found you out on the cliff. and brought you here to be taken care of. Oh, well, thank God there's life on this island. I hardly believed. Few people do. Yes, you are quite safe here in my castle, Mr... The following Tuesday, he appeared on Bob Hope's NBC Pepsodent show. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce one of the real geniuses of the theater, Mr. Orson Welles. Here he is, right here. Thank you very much. I presume you're Bob Hope. <laughs> Why, yes, I am. Well, go sit down somewhere. I'll call you if I need you. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is my show. I'm supposed to be right here. What do you think Pepsodent is paying me for? Mr. Hope, there are some questions even a genius can't answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet somewhere in his family tree there's an ensign. <laughs> but I want to tell you, Orson, we're very glad to have you with us tonight. I've... I've always wanted to meet you. You know, people say that uh, you resemble me. Yes. Uh, in fact, I'm becoming known as the Bob Hope of this generation. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fine thing to say to the youngest man in this room, mentally. Say, by the way, Orson, what do you do? Well, I'm a producer, director, writer, and actor. Well, what do you do for a living? Uh, hmm? 
Say, to tell me, was that me? <laughs> That's you, yeah. <laughs> me next. I had an egg all to myself, didn't I? Oh, thanks. I'm glad you, you. you say. <laughs> Wasn't that cute? I was standing there scrambling that little kid all by myself. <laughs> and I looked at you. I thought you were next, and I followed that kid. I'll fix that one up. Say, they tell me you got an early start in this business, Mr. Wells. Bob, I was so young when I went on the stage, they had to change me more often than the scenery. <laughs> and you're still a pinup boy to me, but tell me. <laughs> tell me, what are you doing these days, Orson? I'm going to England very soon to make a picture. Oh, you're pulling my leg. I wouldn't dream of it, old man. <laughs> At your age, those things come apart. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> going to England, Bob. I am well, going to England. tell me, let me know when you're leaving for England, and I'll give you a note to the king. Oh, are you and the king good friends? Good friends. Orson, do you know where I slept in Buckingham Palace? Yes, damp down there, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, when you go to England, I suppose you'll do your magician act for the boys over there. Yes, I will, Bob. Well, you know, Orson, I think you're the greatest magician in the world. You really think I'm a great magician? I certainly do. 50,000 bachelors in the country, and you make Rita Hayworth disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, what did you do, pull her out of your sleeve? There is a limit to what you can do with magic, Bob. I couldn't any more pull Rita out of my sleeve than you could pull Mussolini out of your baggy pants. <laughs> or whoever that is hiding in there. Well, where do you keep your butter? Say, but, uh... <laughs> you know, Orson... You know, Orson, I'm a little jealous. After all, I was going with Rita first. It was a pretty steady thing. You were going with Rita? Well, I wasn't exactly going with her. I danced with her once at the Hollywood Canteen until the cops made me take off the uniform. <laughs> but you know, before she married you, some gossip was spreading a story around town that Rita was sweet on me. I know, Bob, but I think you went too far when you had it mimeographed and dropped it from airplane. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject, Orson, you know, I gave Rita a necklace. Isn't this rather an odd time to bring that up? Well, I want it back, that's all. Now, don't get excited about it, Bob. After all, how expensive could it have been? Ten pepsodent tubes strung together. Well, a week's pay is a week's pay. But Orson, your romance with Rita started when she was in your magic show and you cut her in half, didn't it? Yes, Bob, I knew it was love the first time I saw her. Drop the net. <laughs> the first time I saw her. Why do I stand here reading this tripe when I could get a good job at Lockheed? <laughs> well, my agent was going to get me a job there, but I refused to let him eat 10% of my lunch. But tell me, do you actually believe in magic and psychic stuff, Orson? Can you read people's minds? Why, yes, Bob. I might say I'm an amateur mind reader. Well, can you read my mind? Bob, I said amateur, not immature. <laughs> however, however, I'll try. Uh, give me a minute and I'll transform myself into a mystic. <laughs> I am now my real self, Swami Wells. <laughs> I am the great Swami. I see all. I know all. I'm Bob Hope. I smell all, too. <laughs> I will give you a reading. Here, let us sit in front of the crystal ball. Is this your crystal ball? Why has it got two holes drilled in it? On Thursday nights, I go bowling. <laughs> sit down, Bob. I'll read your future. 
Now, wait a minute. That ain't a crystal ball. You're reading my future from a grapefruit. Well, that's the one I use for squirts. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I can look in a crystal ball and tell you happenings the future. I can tell you who's going to be in the White House in 1950. You need a crystal ball to see who's going to be in the White House in 1950? <laughs> yes. Republican. <laughs> we'll hold a seance. Put the lights out. Ready? We are now entering the spirit world. Can I ask you a question? All right, Hope. Oh, great spirit, are you there? There's someone here who wants to ask you some questions. Okay, but make it snappy. I'm in 1A. <laughs> Hope, you may now speak to the spirit. He is ready to obey your order. Fine. Spirit, I'd like to speak to my old granddad. What was your order? Old granddad. Sorry, it's after curfew. Cologne, are you a spirit now? That's right, Hope. I am a spirit who sees all, knows all, past, present, future. I have great psychic powers because the ghosts of the great beyond have made me their lieutenant. J.G. <laughs> Cologne, why have you got so many screws loose? Well, I don't know, Hope. Yes, there was absenteeism on the assembly line. Cologne, I don't believe you're in the great beyond at all. Well, don't be silly, Hope. Of course I am. I'm sitting here with Cleopatra on my lap. Cologne, Cleopatra's been dead for 400 years. She has? Yes. Well, I'll take back my fraternity pin. <laughs> Come over here, Cologne. Come over here right away. Now, wait a minute. Hope, I'm going to perform my greatest trick. You've heard how Orson Welles saws girls in half? Well, I am going to saw Orson Welles in half. Come here, Orson. Uh, Cologne, that's my trick. You've never done it before. I'm afraid that uh, there might uh, be a slip-up. Quit horsing, Orson. I'll... I'll bet you a thousand dollars I can do it. A thousand dollars. I'll bet. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, which end should I pay it to? Wells' radio star remained bright, and he was busy. That fall, he was guest on Duffy's Tavern, The Fred Allen Show, Radio Reader's Digest, The Philip Morris Playhouse, Stage Door Canteen, We the People, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, and Command Performance. We thank you so much. All the radio work served as practice. This is Orson Welles just saying hello before the show starts. There's a full moon tonight. February 11th is the anniversary of the day Thomas Alva Edison was born. He invented the incandescent lamp, only to discover years later that Spencer Tracy had beat him to it. <laughs> Welcome to your radio almanac, ladies and gentlemen. At the sign of the flying red horse. On Wednesday, January 26, 1944, CBS, Mobile Oil, and Orson Welles launched a variety program with comedy, jazz, and a weekly guest star. It would be a true radio almanac. On February 9th, Anne Southern appeared. The Mercury team of veterans like Agnes Moorhead, Hans Conried, and Ray Collins supported. Ladies and gentlemen, Anne Southern! Hello, Anne. Hello, Anne. Hello, Orson. You know, I don't mind telling you I'm scared stiff. Well, scared stiff? Why? Well, aren't you going to saw me in half? Oh, no, the OPA put a stop to that. They said I was wasting too many women. 
<laughs> I'm not just a magician, Anne. I'm, I'm a romantic lover, oh. you know. Of course, I don't believe it, but they, they do say that, compared to me, Sinatra is just a boy scout. Mm. <laughs> he may be a boy scout, but a lot of girl scouts belong to his troop. Well, uh, don't get me wrong, Anne. I'm not envious. As a matter of fact, in my next Mercury Theater production... I've been thinking of doing Romeo and Juliet with Frank Sinatra as Romeo. Really? Yes. Can't you just hear him singing on the balcony as Juliet climbs up to him? <laughs> Orson, I don't want to criticize an old Shakespearean authority like you, but Juliet stands on the balcony and Romeo climbs up to her. I know, but Sinatra would never make it. <laughs> Now, look, Ann, we're doing a scene later, and you'll find out how romantic I am. Well, if we're going to do a scene together, I'd better give you a couple of pointers. Pointers? Yes. Now, let me show you. Now, put your arms around My me. My arms around you like this? Uh-huh. Now, say something romantic. Oh, my darling. <laughs> What's funny about that? <laughs> oh, my darling. I love you with an equatorial passion. You ought to see me in Jane Eyre. <laughs> I love you with an equatorial passion that no thermometer can register. Oh, my darling, pardon me, Anne. Hello? Oh, hello, dear. What? We're only acting. Of course I don't mean it. Honestly, she was only teaching me something. Oh, I know you can. But I, I, but, but... You know I do. I said you know. I said you know I do. I can't say it now. There are people listening. <laughs> I say... I say there are people listening. <laughs> oh, please don't be angry. I'll call you later. Goodbye. Who was that? My laundry man. <laughs> oh, yes. You've got to be awfully nice to them these days. Now let's go on. You were saying... Ah, yes. Darling, I didn't... I uh, Oh, yes. You were saying... Thank you for giving it to me again. I'll try it once more. Darling, I've endeavored to conceal a passion who's in... You should see me in Jane Eyre. I don't do this. <laughs> I have endeavored to conceal a passion whose inner fires are broiling the very soul within me. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, it says in the script that you will. Uh, hello? Oh, it's okay. I'll tell him. Orson, your laundryman says he's going home to his mother... She's always kidding that way I'll bet Now, come on, Orson Make like Sinatra <laughs> Kiss me All right, I will Uh-uh Orson, who is this character? This is Mr. Peabristle, the censor uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells, but you can't kiss Anne Southern like that Why? You know a better way? <laughs> He's not allowed to kiss anybody that close to a microphone. Why not? Well, the voice is too romantic. Mr. Pre-bristle. What? Pre-bristle. Pre-bristle. Whatever gave you the idea that his voice is romantic? Well, now, just read this letter. Uh, dear sir, whenever Orson Welles speaks, I get goose pimples signed Bella. Bella? What's the address? 602 Beverly Drive. Just as I thought. Bella Lugosi. Well, I have additional proof. Uh, let me show you. Uh, would you three young ladies please step up on the stage? That's right, right this way. All right, Mr. Wells, say something romantic. You mean, uh, 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 like this? 
Darling, I love you. Ah! Orson, pick him up. Are they kidding? You girls don't really think I'm romantic, do you? It's ridiculous, anyway, anyone feeling this way about me. I uh, oh, just... you, you send us wealthy. He's a killer. Solid, Jack. You see, I wasn't lying. Now go on, say something romantic. Say something romantic, like, uh, like I adore you. Ah! <laughs> Wellsy, pick us up. I can't understand it. That's because you're a man. Thanks. <laughs> Pick me up. Oh, girls, can I join the club too? Yeah. Just sing the theme song with this here. When we heard Frank Sinatra, we all gave out with yells. Gave out with yells. But we're through with Sinatra. Now we swoon for Orson Wells. For Orson Wells. Boats without the oars. Without the oars. But now our life's worth living. When he says obediently, But Wells was soon in battle with his sponsor, Mobile Oil, and the run was short lived. The Orson Welles Almanac went off the air after July 19th. March, 1835, Paris, France. Dear Aaron, I have thought long about idea. It is the best way. I accept your proposition. By the time you read letter, I and Raya will be on ship to Quebec. I will bring one pound of my inheritance, rest arriving on ship this summer as we have arranged. We expect a reliable guide to wait for us in Quebec. I will send letter when we reach land in America. Doskoroi Strechi, Countess Sorina Maria Derzinskaya Zubov. Sorina! We must pack, little sister. It is time to go to America. Don't be fooled. Danger is coming. Premiering soon on your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction podcast set in 1835 New York City. 
subscribe to this audio feed to learn more, or go to burninggotham.com. I had a political column, and I also was the editor of a, of a magazine. I was very busy in that area for a while. But didn't so you long ago, everybody's forgotten. Running for office, and didn't Roosevelt encourage you to do it? Yes, he wanted me to, but I think each said he wanted me to to make me happy. Roma Wines presents Suspense. Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Your health, senor. Roma Wines toast the world. The wine for your table is Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is the Man in Black, here to introduce this weekly half hour of Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, we bring you a star, Mr. Orson Welles. This will be the first of two consecutive performances by Mr. Wells, in which he will appear as the protagonist of Kurt Siodmak's novel, Donovan's Brain. The producer of Suspense and its sponsors, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, feel that this story is so unusual that it merits more than our usual time. So in somewhat of a departure from established radio formulas, we will bring you the story of Donovan's Brain in two parts. Part one you will hear tonight, and part two next Monday night at this same time. Before we take you to the scene of our drama, let's take a little journey of a different kind. On May 15, 1944, Orson Welles was placed on the U.S. Treasury payroll to consult for the duration of the war. His pay? An honorary one dollar. Three days later, Welles was the star of a seminal CBS broadcast. Although he'd appeared on suspense many times before, on May 18th, he was the lead in part one of William Spears' production of Donovan's Brain, based on the 1942 Kurt Ziodmak novel. Wells played Dr. Patrick Corey, who successfully learns to keep a brain alive outside the human body. The sound effects were outstanding for their time. Donovan's Brain is considered one of the first adult science fiction broadcasts. And with the performance of Orson Welles as Dr. Patrick Corey, we again hope to keep you in suspense. As I sit now outside my laboratory door writing under the heading Experiment 87, this final entry in my casebook, I know that these are the last words I shall ever write upon this earth. I neither ask nor expect forgiveness now or hereafter, but for those who seek some explanation, I refer them simply to this casebook. Let them read it carefully from its first entry on that ill-starred day of July the 13th. July 13th. Today I bought a small capuchin monkey from an organ grinder. The animal trembled with fear when I took it into my laboratory and when I tried to pet it, it bit me. I had to make it trust me completely. Fear causes an excess secretion of adrenaline resulting in an abnormal condition of the bloodstream which would throw off my observations. So I fed it and finally the creature voluntarily crept up into my arms uttering little whimpers of content. When it laid its head against my shoulder, I stabbed it the surgical lancet. It died instantly. 
Well, David, what do you think of it? Well, it, it's pretty amazing, all right. See what I've done, don't you? I, I think so. You think so? Good Lord, don't you know? Well, after all that, I'm only a second-year medical I student. I know, but what if I was a second-year student? Who is it? It's me, Janice. Come in, darling. Patrick, Dr. Schrott is here to see you. Oh, come on in, Doctor. You know our son, David, of course. Yes, of course. How are you, my boy? Fine, thanks, Doctor. Well, Patrick, hard at it as usual, I see. <laughs> Patrick, you didn't eat the lunch I sent in to you. Well, what is it this time, Patrick? A brain. What? A brain, a brain, a monkey's brain. Oh. What about the brain, Patrick? I've been trying to see how long I can keep the tissue alive. Oh, is that it in that jar? Oh, there's considerably more to it than just a jar, though. Want to see how it works? Is it still alive? In a way, yes. It's a fairly simple device, actually, Doctor. Variation on Corell's mechanical heart. The brain lies in a bath of blood serum. These... Rubber arteries are fixed to the vertebral and internal carotid arteries of the brain. The blood substance is forced through the cycle of Willis, feed the tissue. Over here, I've installed a small rotary pump that forces the blood circulation, you see? But how do you know it's alive? It's very easy to determine. The brain, when functioning, gives off infinitesimal electrical impulses. They can be measured. As a matter of fact, I've hooked the encephalograph up to a small amplifying system. The brain impulses can actually be heard. Here, I'll turn it on. You see? Quite effective, isn't it? Yes, it's effective. And it's it's wrong, Patrick. Terribly wrong. Oh, I've tried wrong. to tell him, Dr. Schrott. In if heaven's only... name, what's wrong with it? Oh, Patrick, you and your mechanistic philosophy, trying to reduce life to a mere matter of chemicals and test tubes. The origin of life is from a higher domain than that, Patrick. And you're profaning. Nonsense. You can't stop the progress of science. Every discovery of whatever kind is a step forward. If I can prove that the brain can perform certain functions outside the body, who knows where we may be able to go from there. Oh, Patrick, how, how do you know that thing in there doesn't feel pain? How do you know it isn't writhing in agony? Brain tissue itself is insensitive, you know that? Just a feeling look. I'll switch on the encephalograph. See? There. Notice the faintness of the amplified alpha rays. Notice the comparatively slow rate of pulsation now. Notice what happens when I tap on the glass jar. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, yesterday, on June 4, 1944, Rome fell to American and Allied troops. The first of the Axis capitals is now in our hands. One up and two to go. It is perhaps significant that the first of these capitals to fall should have the longest history of all of them. Wells was a longtime supporter and campaign speaker for Franklin D. Roosevelt. He occasionally sent the president ideas and phrases, some of which were incorporated into FDR's speeches. This fireside chat is from the evening of June 5, 1944. On that night, Wells reprised his Jane Eyre role of Edward Rochester for the Lux Radio Theater. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beginning of a busy week for me. With Gary Cooper and the story of Dr. Wassell opening in New York tomorrow night and here in Hollywood on Wednesday. And tonight, the week is certainly off to a wonderful start with two of our town's most accomplished artists, 
in one of the immortal love stories of the English language. Loretta Young and Orson Welles in Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre almost a century ago. And yet in a world at war... That season, Lux was CBS's most popular show, with a 23.3 rating. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report, unconfirmed by Allied sources, of course... Early on the morning of June 6th, reports confirmed the Allied invasion of Europe had begun. Amphibious landings on the Normandy coast were preceded by bombardment and an airborne landing of 24,000 Allied troops shortly after midnight. Allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of France at 6.30 a.m. The target stretch of the Normandy was divided into five sectors, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Strong winds blew the landing crafts off course. The men landed under heavy fire from batteries overlooking the beaches, and the shore was littered with obstacles like wooden stakes, metal tripods, and barbed wire. Casualties were heaviest at Omaha with its high cliffs. At Gold, Juno, and Sword, several fortified towns were cleared in house-to-house -house fighting. And two of Gold's gun emplacements were disabled using specialized tanks. But only two of the beaches, Uno and Gold, were linked on the first day. That evening, Orson Welles took to the air with a special edition of his almanac. The following program will be interrupted to bring you any late news developments. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Instead of our regular program at this time, the makers of Mobile Gas and Mobile Oil and the Mercury Theater bring you a special broadcast. My dearest son... I guess June 6th and 7th will be always remembered in history. I know that none of us will ever forget those days, even we who live at home. Your father will have more to remember about these two days and more to tell you. I don't know where he is now as I write this. Somewhere in the north of France it must be. But when he comes back, and oh, my dear little son, I pray to God he will come back. When he comes back, I know he'll have a better story to tell than this. Anyway, here's our side of it, here on the home front. That's what the papers call it, the home front. Sometimes I... I feel kind of ashamed of that expression. It really isn't much of a front. We do have trouble getting houses, and there isn't much room on the streetcars, and... Sometimes the steak is a little tough, but there aren't any of us living on K rations, and altogether the war is pretty easy to fight here in sunny California. We work hard, and don't let anybody tell you we've let down because we haven't, and we won't. Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau asked Wells to lead the fifth war bond drive. Nobody out here sleeps in a bomb shelter. It opened on June 12th with a one-hour radio show from Texas over all four networks. June 12th, 
was the same day all Normandy beachheads were finally connected. The next week, Wells was at Soldier Field in Chicago when this leg of the drive was broadcast. Tonight, the Coca-Cola Company, sponsor of the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands, is giving its time to the United States Treasury in order that you may hear a special war bond program from Soldier's Field in Chicago. Therefore, the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands will not be broadcast, but will keep its date in person with the war workers of the Bruner Ritter Company at Bridgeport, Connecticut. Keep tuned to hear a gala floor show among other headliners, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, Jr., Lana Turner, Jack Benny, Ray Bolger, Paul Lucas, and others. see flashing that this America is only you and me. Its power, weapons, testimony are you and me. Its crimes, lies, thefts, defections are you and me. Its Congress is you and me. The officers, capitals, armies, ships are you and me. Freedom, language, poems, employments are you and me. Past, present, future are you and me. Ladies and gentlemen, the Secretary of the United States Treasury, Mr. Henry Morgenthau, Jr. This America is you and me. When you lend your government money for this war, you join a great crusade. General Eisenhower has called it that, a great crusade. Your bond is a symbol of your part in that crusade. Your money goes to the men fighting for us in this desperate war. They need that money. Every penny you can raise. They need it more than ever before. They need it now for ships and planes and tanks and bombs and bullets. For all the engines of destruction by which they mean to force surrender from the enemy on their own ground and to blast a sure foundation for the peace. They need money for war 
and they need it also for mercy. Mercy is expensive, too. The medical department of the Army has spent approximately $1 billion since Pearl Harbor. So far this year, we've spent more than $5 million for penicillin alone. We spent millions more, many millions, to fly the wounded and sick out of battle areas. Last year, we flew more than 170,000 wounded men to the safety of hospitals. 170,000 men. And out of that number, 11 men died. The rest were saved. Your bond helped save those men. America's great only if it puts the purposes of war before the war itself. Americans were encouraged to buy $16 billion in bonds to finance the most violent phase of the war. When this bond drive ended on July 8th, U.S. citizens had raised almost $21 billion in war loans. From tyranny, from fear, from physical, moral, and economic bondage. The final speech has for its title, False Issues and the American Presidency. I take pleasure in presenting to you a distinguished representative of the theater and an editor of the Free World magazine, Orson Welles. Thank you, Mrs. Reed. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Before proceeding with a prepared speech, I would like to say that I'm very sorry that Mrs. Luce has left before I had a chance to ask her on what date Mr. Roosevelt renounced the League of Nations. I cannot believe that there are many serious people who privately deny the greatness of Franklin Roosevelt. I think that even most Republicans, I think that even most Republicans are resigned to it that when the elections are over and the history books are written, our president will emerge as one of the great names in one of democracy's great centuries. Republicans are correct and wholly loyal to the American tradition. Wells campaigned for the Roosevelt-Truman ticket almost full-time in the fall of 1944, traveling to nearly every state at his own expense, to the detriment of his health. But the very worst tone for such a campaign is the tone of reproach. On October 18th, he filled in for Roosevelt, opposite New York Governor and Republican presidential nominee Thomas E. Dewey. It was at the New York Herald Tribune Forum and broadcast on the Blue Network. offers them in this election by way of choice. If the people assume that the alternative 
is a mere retreat to the so-called normalcy of Mr. Hoover, the black years of poverty and despair, it is because the people haven't heard sufficient testimony to contradict that feeling. And I do not expect that the people can fully receive in their affections men who have tried to make so little of other men who have done so much. has had a most profound influence on the thinking of Republican leaders. But a studious examination of the latest Republican pronouncements doesn't establish that the grand old party is broken with its well-known restrictionist attitudes, nor with its ancient reluctance to admit the government's responsibility to the welfare of the whole people. Republican pledges made in this campaign seem affirmative only when they duplicate or promise to duplicate Democratic New Deal accomplishments. Indeed, while Governor Dewey's endorsement of these New Deal pronouncements is oblique enough, its sum is the most valid possible tribute to Mr. Roosevelt and to the achievements of the Roosevelt administration. Republican proposals, however, are not for the enlargement of these measures, but for their limitation. Limitation is the dominant theme of their current approach, and their program at its most legible can be most fairly described as reformist. But the temper of the times is not the mood of reform. It is impossible for the people not to feel now that they are living through great days. I find everywhere the conviction that the beauty and practicability of the American idea has been reaffirmed in our time. The cue for loyal opposition was to match this outlook with a program equally affirmative and more positive. Here I think the Republicans have missed their cue. I think they have misjudged the electorate again. I think they would be wiser if they promised to do more, but as a Roosevelt partisan, I'm frank to say that I'm glad they aren't making such promises because I don't believe they could keep them. These are days when promises are believed because we have seen promises kept. There is, I notice with pleasure, a difference of opinion in this bipartisan meeting. The people some of whom are not in this room the people are full of hope and if the people are to be moved from their devotion to Roosevelt's leadership it can only be done by encouraging greater hopes never by inoculating the people with dismay the labor question just for example a great deal has been said on the Republican side of this election argument about the laxity of labor in the war effort, and much has been made of wartime strikes. The cheerful sacrifice, the heroic and easy skill of our American fighting men is something for all our grandchildren to boast of, and it's a fact that American victories on the fighting fronts are only possible because of the war record of the American production job. 
but still the Republicans harp on wartime strikes. Yet the fact remains unchallenged that not a single soldier, not a single sailor, or a single aviator in our armed forces has lacked a single gun or a single bullet or a single plane for the failure of labor to produce it. This is from General Marshall's instructions, document number two, War Department, Washington 25 DC, fact sheet number 29. orientation officer, the prominence given in the press to accounts of strikes has sometimes tended to overshadow the positive achievement of labor in the war effort, unquote. Bear in mind, please, this is from General Marshall's official document. Again, I quote, the production front record of management of labor is magnificent. It needs and should have no apology. Only publicity and understanding, unquote. <laughs> Further, by way of inoculating dismay, the Republican candidate has not hesitated to announce the existence of what he calls a democratic plot to keep our fighting men in uniform past the time of need for their service. And we have actually heard it stated by at least one other prominent Republican spokesman that our heroic dead in this war are dead as a result of Mr. Roosevelt's foreign policy. What is to be said in answer to this sort of argument? With most other Americans, I believe that our dead fell in this war for a purpose. With most other Americans, I believe that purpose to be the destruction of fascism. With most other Americans, I believe that our president was the first to warn us against fascism and the first to urge our preparedness for this anti-fascist war. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard the third and final in a series of broadcasts by the Blue Network of the Herald Tribune's Forum, presenting Governor Thomas E. Dewey, Claire Luce Booth, Congressman from Connecticut, Mrs. Helen Gehagen Douglas, candidate for Congress from California, and the brilliant young actor Orson Welles. And there's just one note I should like to stress. In all these speeches, Mrs. Luce brought out one point that religion must mark the peace, for we have made ourselves the children of superpower, and where has that brought us? We are the children first of supreme power. This is the Blue Network. The next week, Wells made an appearance on The Charlie McCarthy Show. Makers of Chase and Sanborn Coffee bring you Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snurd with Ray Noble and his orchestra, Joan Merrill, yours truly, Jim Amici, and Charlie's special guest, Orson Welles. And now we have a song by that lovely, vivacious, charming personality, none other than... Your obedient servant, Orson Welles. You may applaud if you care to. What is this? That's quite all right, gentlemen. Don't bother to curtsy. Orson Welles. Long time no see. 
But not long enough. Yeah. <laughs> ah, Charles, Charles, it's indeed a great pleasure to meet my old compatriot and worthy opponent of many a battle of wits. Yeah? Mm. Gee, do you mean that, or, or is this a booby trap? <laughs> yeah, Charles, I really mean it. Well, that's nice, gentlemen. Then we should have a very pleasant reunion this evening. Oh, huh? I'm sorry, Edgar, but I must hurry off to give a very important lecture at the museum tonight. Yeah. You give a lecture at the museum? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'll have you know I have brains. I'm not just a pretty face. <laughs> no, you're not. No. Charlie, but let's attend Orson's lecture tonight. Yeah. Yeah, that has possibilities, yeah. Well, I doubt if you can find me. I'll be on the third floor among the anthropoid apes. Well, wear your hat so we'll know you. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> We have very funny lines here tonight, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, please uh, stick to the script, Orson. Maybe you can't read. Oh, no. Uh, well, I shall prove it. <laughs> I shall prove it by doing a uh, reading, as only Orson Welles can do it. Would you like to hear a soliloquy from Hamlet or a speech from Julius Caesar? I'd like to hear a song from Joe Merrill. Oh, that's nice of you, Charlie. I'll be glad to sing for you. You mean I don't give my reading? Uh, no. Very well. May I say it was nice being among friends? even though they weren't mine. <laughs> Goodbye. He accompanied FDR to Boston for his last campaign rally on Saturday, November 4th. It drew 40,000 people to Fenway Park. On election eve, Wells appeared on the Democratic National Committee program. The most important question surrounding the election was, which potential leader would be best suited to lead the peace effort? This is Humphrey Bogart. I'm a registered voter in the 16th Congressional District of California. I'm one of a number of people from a great many walks of life who come here tonight of our own free will because we have a deep and common interest in the outcome tomorrow of the most important election in this history of our country. We're here to tell you why we're going to vote a certain way. And what we've got to say will come straight from the shoulder, even if it's sung sometimes instead of spoken. Personally... I'm voting for Franklin D. Roosevelt because I think he's one of the world's greatest humanitarians and because he's leading our fight against the enemies of a free people in a free world. Millions of other people are for him for the same reason or perhaps very different reasons. And a few of these people are here with us tonight to let you in on their particular angle. Some have come from long distances like the man at my elbow who reaches his microphone by way of Cambridge, Massachusetts, San Diego and Tarawa. My name is Harry Candler. I joined the Navy at the age of 48 because I felt the danger confronting us. I felt that the security of my children and your children was at stake. Last September, Mrs. Kendler and I lost a son somewhere in France. Another son is in the Army. Until I was disabled off Tarawa, I did everything possible in the Navy to fulfill my obligation to my children. Right now, I'd like to say this. If our president is defeated, I will feel as though I were defeated because he typifies everything I felt I was fighting for. I want to hold on to our social games. I wouldn't want to see my shipmates living in shacks in empty lots. It isn't easy to forget the Hoovervilles after the First World War. Most important, I don't want a Third World War. I don't want to risk my third son's life at the untried and inexperienced hands of a city district attorney. I'm sure you don't. Standing now at a microphone in New York is a man who saw action 12,000 miles from Tawawa, an Italian boy from the Bronx. 
Go ahead, Jim. Tuesday, November 7th, 1944. Election Day. New York's Republican governor and former district attorney, Thomas Dewey, who'd once taken down Murder, Inc., faced Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt, seeking an unprecedented fourth term. But to be torpedoed in your own state by your own governor... That evening, Gabriel Heater took to the air. Time for Gabriel Heater and his up-to-the-minute news of the world brought to you by Four Hands, F-O-R-H-A-N-S, Four Hands Toothpaste. If your gums bleed when you brush your teeth or are tender to touch, listen carefully. These are often signs of gingivitis, a common gum inflammation which four out of five may have. If prompt attention isn't paid, it may lead to pyorrhea with its receding gums and loosening teeth, which only your dentist can help. See your dentist. And at home, help guard against gingivitis by massaging gums twice daily with Four Hands Toothpaste. Four Hands is the formula of Dr. R.J. Four Hand, the first and original toothpaste for both massaging gums to be firmer and cleaning teeth to their natural brilliance. And now, Gabriel Heater. Good evening, everyone. This news will cheer the hearts of all Americans in all parties. Admiral Halsey's score for the two-day air battle over Luzon is now 440 Jap planes destroyed and 30 merchant and warships sunk or damaged. News to cheer the hearts of all Americans. I'm told all transmitters in Berlin are being kept open all night for the election returns. There's so much keen interest in Nazi Germany in our election returns tonight. Well, count on this. The next president, whether his name be Roosevelt or Dewey, will fight Germany until her war machine is brought to its knees, until Germany announces she surrenders unconditionally. And that being so, what possible interest can Germany have in our election returns? You and I have a great deal of interest in those returns. And here from Mutual's newsroom, where the tickers are pouring in the very last complete roundup, based on figures compiled exactly 20 seconds ago... They show 530,400 popular votes for President Roosevelt. That's more than half a million. 362,100 popular votes for Dewey. And I may say they've been running pretty much along that ratio for the past half hour. That is out of a total vote, however, of only 890,000. Under a million. And there are 50 million votes which may be counted before the totals are in. You may be interested in knowing roughly how these totals are shaping up in several states. Well, before I give you that, let me say this. Roosevelt, based on these compilations, now has a combined electoral vote or is leading in states having a combined electoral vote of 196. 17 states having a combined electoral votes of 196 show the president ahead. Governor Dewey in 15 states having a combined electoral vote of 173. When the results were finally in, it was an electoral landslide. FDR carried 36 states and won 432 of the 531 electorates. However, FDR only won by about 3 million total votes, carrying 53% to Dewey's 46. There was beginning to be a public question as to whether Roosevelt could survive another term. On Friday, November 10th, the president returned to Washington. NBC News was there. 
Bow program usually heard at this time will be momentarily delayed for a special broadcast. Friday morning, November the 10th, the President of the United States of America, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, returns to the nation's capital. Washington has turned out this morning to greet the first fourth-term President of the United States. This is Kenneth Banghart speaking from our NBC microphones here at Union Station, which we set up just beside the President's private railroad car. President Roosevelt's train pulled in about 8.30 this morning, and right now his special car was moved down to another track where we're standing, and in the background you can hear the Metropolitan Police Band of Washington as they play Hail to the Chief. He is going to leave now and go out to the Union Station Plaza for his drive to the White House. These informal receptions by the citizens and officials of Washington have grown to be a custom here in the nation's capital. First in 1936 and again in 1940, hundreds of thousands have turned out to greet the chief executive on his return to Washington after his re-election. The crowds, of course, are outside Union Station here, just beyond us, out in the Union Plaza. And when he gets out there, we're going to switch you over there so that you can hear the reception that he'll receive. Government offices here in the district have given their employees some time off to be on hand to greet the president. Our schools here in the district weren't closed this morning, but teachers are going to accept notes from parents who want their children to be on hand. And from the looks of things, as we came down here this morning, there certainly were a lot of them that wanted to be here. All the offices of the District of Columbia Municipal Government closed this morning, too. Yesterday afternoon, wartime restrictions on advanced news of the president's movements were lifted. So it's been announcements of the time of the president... That weekend, the Battle of Batina began in Croatia, and the Japanese island of Iwo Jima faced heavy U.S. bombardment. On Sunday, November 12th, CBS News gave updates. World News Today, brought to you by Admiral Corporation, in behalf of Admiral distributors and dealers all over America and in many foreign lands. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations and leading news centers in our own country, CBS reporters are waiting to bring you first-hand news from the world's political and battlefronts. Now, here's Douglas Edwards. The world heard indirectly from Hitler for the first time in 17 weeks today. He didn't broadcast, but he issued a proclamation containing all the old Nazi diatribes and claims that victory for Germany is certain, with the preservation of Germans of first importance. At the same time, the German Volkssturm, the People's Army, swore allegiance to the Fuhrer and pledged unconditional resistance to the Allies. Reich's Minister Goebbels spoke at the ceremonies and said regiments of the People's Army would be used to bolster any critical section of the front. Orson Welles spent the rest of November recuperating. Rita Hayworth was pregnant with their first child. Welles made only three additional appearances on the air before December 17th. May 1st, 1835. It's a cold and rainy moving day. Every renter in New York is out on the street looking for lodging. 
Most of the city's quarter million live below Houston Street in buildings, four stories or smaller. But construction is booming. Rich and ragged with furniture, wagons, carts, drays, ropes, canvases, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers. White, yellow, and black occupy the streets from east to west, north to south. Everyone I spoke to on the subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. More than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience. New people are pouring onto New York's dangerously overcrowded streets by the thousands. It seemed to me that the city was fine before some awful calamity. I said, Colonel, what in heaven is the matter? Everyone was pitching out their furniture and packing it up. He laughed and said this was the general moving day. Seemed kind of a frolic, as if they were changing houses just for the fun. Eh, so the well goes. It would take a good deal to get me out of my log house. But yeah, I understand many persons move each year. Rich and poor, many come to earn an honest living. Others, for more nefarious reasons. And it's the perfect place to begin. Coming soon, Burning Gotham, a new scripted audio fiction series about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. world's largest radio manufacturer, presents your Radio Hall of Fame. From the beautiful Earl Carroll Theater Restaurant in Hollywood, today and every Sunday for one full hour, the stars made great by your recognition of their achievements are brought to you by Philco Corporation. Makers today of radar and electronic equipment to help win the war... Make us tomorrow of products for good living in a world at peace. The name of our master of ceremonies today is reason enough for him being in your radio hall of fame. He's a talented, lovable guy. The Bob Hope of song, who can currently be seen in the Paramount picture, Here Come the Waves, Bing Crosby. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open At 3 p.m. Pacific time on Christmas Eve, 1944, the now independently owned Blue Network, who'd soon officially change their name to the American Broadcasting Company, aired a Christmas spectacular on the Philco Radio Hall of Fame from their Hollywood affiliate, KECA. Christmas 1944 was subdued, but for the first time, Americans could feel the end of the war victoriously approaching. Orson Welles appeared with Bing Crosby. Love 
What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open Oh, we have a lot of fun Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open Thank you, Jimmy Wellington, for the wonderful, eloquent introduction you gave me. You know, I was afraid for a moment that you weren't going to leave me enough adjectives to adequately introduce, or if you rather I didn't split an infinitive, to introduce adequately the one and only Orson Welles. You know, in introducing candidates for your Radio Hall of Fame, it's customary to indulge in hyperbole and to stretch the English language in an effort to find new expressions which will do justice to their personal magnificence and their rare talent. However, in the case of this next member, he's not a candidate because he was installed earlier this year, I'm not going to do it. After all, when you've said that he's probably the most versatile person in show business, a remarkable actor, director, producer, and writer, what can you say that just isn't so much parsley, really? I don't know... Except that maybe to add that right now, recordings of him reading the entire Bible are being made. It will eventually be played on many stations throughout the country. It will be well worth listening to because he's good. I don't know what else I can say about him, so I won't. Orson Welles, it's... Welcome to the Hall of Fame, Orson, and happy Yuletide. Thanks, Bing, and Merry Christmas to you, too. And Orson, I do mean you. Thank I you do, so yeah. much. Why don't you come up to our shack for Christmas Eve, Orson? Just the family will be home. No, thanks, Bing. It'll be too crowded. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a jolly program arranged. We really have. We're having a preview of the new picture I just made with Lamore and Hope. It's called The Road to Utopia. Do you mean to say that you allow your children to see Bob Hope in a movie? <laughs> well, I'm hoping it'll have the same effect on them as a crime doesn't pay short, maybe. <laughs> Tell me, uh, what is this uh, road to Utopia? Oh, it's just two guys and a gal in the frozen north. Too much plot. <laughs> Thank well, you for laughing. I like it. Yeah, I enjoy uh, it. <laughs> in the picture, Hope and I are two grizzled old prospectors. If Lamour is in the picture, I know what Hope is prospecting for. <laughs> and the kid hasn't got the pan for it either. <laughs> what? <laughs> What I can't understand is, is how come you got Dorothy Lamore way up in the north where she'll have to wear big fur coats. Oh, no, no. Dorothy walks around in a sarong. Please, Crosby, you are straining my credulity. A sarong in the frozen north? But, certainement. When Ski knows Caesar, he generates enough heat to warm a 12-room apartment. <laughs> some lover, some lover, that boy. Oh, hopes, some lover. You know, most fellas, before they start getting romantic, have to wait till the moon is high. What about Bob? He has to wait till the girl is high. <laughs> You're so right. You're so right. Really, yes, but I am. Bobsy is an impetuous lover. You know, in one scene, Orson, he squeezed Dorothy Lamore so hard, he knocked three of her vertebrae out of place. Well, that must have been awful for Dot. Oh, no. I got her into a clinch, snapped them right back in there. <laughs> Using the sharks, medical method. I no, give that, half sure. Well, how do you explain that Bob Hope thing? Well, Orson, Bob has led a very sheltered youth. Oh, yeah. You know, he was 36 years old before he was told about the birds and the bees. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that explains it. What's yeah. this? Well, I, I just saw him on the corner of Hollywood and Vine flapping his arms and saying, I want honey, I want honey. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, no matter what you say about him, Bengal, you have to admit that Bob Hope is a great guy. Yes, yes. and he's a very handsome. Yes, he's a great actor, too. Yes, and he's talented. And very generous, yeah. too. Yes, sir. We may as well get in all our lies before the new year. <laughs> Actually, the spirit of friendship and forgiveness should prevail. And Orson, there's something that really... It's in the Christmas mood, and I heard you read it once. Something from the Bible. I wonder if you'd read it for us now. I'm referring to the story of the nativity as told by St. Luke in the Bible, according to St. James. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It was fitting that Wells narrated the happy prince with a weak old princess at home. He would make no radio appearances, until the spring. That was a beautiful reading of one of the most beautiful stories ever told. Tonight and tomorrow in churches throughout the world we call civilized, there'll be prayer and song. Some churches will be kind of improvised, with no walls, with their only arch the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, today in pursuance of my constitutional duty, I sent to the Congress a message on the State of the Union. And this evening I am taking the opportunity to repeat to you some parts of that message. 
this war must be waged, it is being waged, with the greatest and most persistent intensity. Everything we are, everything we have is at stake. Everything we are and have will be given. We have no question of the ultimate victory. We have no question of the cost. Our losses will be heavy. But we and our allies will go on fighting together to ultimate total victory. We have seen a year marked on the whole by substantial progress toward victory, even though the year ended with a setback for our arms, when the Germans launched a ferocious counterattack into Luxembourg and Belgium with the obvious objectives of cutting our line in the center. Our men have fought with indescribable and unforgettable gallantry under most difficult conditions. The high tide of this German attack was reached two days after Christmas. Since then, we have reassumed the offensive. We have rescued the isolated garrison at Bastogne and forced the German withdrawal along most of the line of the salient. Oh, yes. For great days. Great I had day. intended to bring a, a little magical illusion with me, and I put it in the wrong jacket. No magic tonight? So, no magic tonight, and I also told myself that I would do what Mrs. Temple used to tell Shirley before every take, and I find I'm not doing it. Do you know what she used to say? No. This is really true. Just as they put that slate on, you know, take number four, whatever right. it is, littlest rebel. She'd say, sparkle, Shirley. Mm. Sparkle. sparkle, Shirley. Mm. So that's what I told myself behind the curtain. Sparkle, Orson. <laughs> Good evening. This is Orson Welles, inviting you to listen now to The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad on Cresta Blanca's This Is My Best. <laughs> This is My Best, America's greatest stars in the world's best story. Presented each week by Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine. Wine of friendly nature. Pride of the Vintner's Art. This is My Best debuted over CBS Airwaves on Tuesday, September 5th, 1944. Originally, it was a book of the month club. Producer Homer Thicket chose works from modern authors to be adapted for Hollywood radio stars. Six months later, Orson Welles abruptly took over. He initiated a shift to classics, debuting with Heart of Darkness on March 13, 1945. Orson Welles again. I can't tell you how truly pleased and proud I am to join the Cresta Blanca program. This is my best, and I'm glad to, to start off with an old favorite, a show the Mercury brought you first, a story we came to Hollywood to make a movie of. We never did. Maybe someday we will. But I think it's particularly well-suited to radio. Here it is. One of the best-regarded and most typical of the works of Joseph Conrad. The Heart of Darkness could be described as a deliberate masterpiece or a downright incantation. Almost we are persuaded that there is something after all, something essential, waiting for all of us in the dark areas of the world. Aboriginally loathsome, immeasurable, and certainly nameless. Thank you. 
And this also has been one of the dark places of the earth. Eight bells. Guess I better call all hands. No hurry, mister. We can't put the ship anyway till the tide turns. Be nice to see New York again. What's that you say, Marlowe, about the dark places? Hmm? Oh, I was thinking of very old times. When our fathers first came here 400 years ago the other day. Imagine the feelings of a skipper of a fine frigate or a bark. A civilized man 400 years ago hoped to off the battery here the very end of the world. He'd land in a swamp, march through the woods, and in some inland post feel the savagery, the utter savagery that stirs in the forests, in the jungles, in the hearts of wild men. Has a fascination, too, that goes to work upon him. The abomination, you know. There's a man I knew once. I'd like to tell you about him. About the girl, too. Now you're getting somewhere. Uh, it's his story. Well, let's hear it, man. To understand everything, you ought to know how I got out there. How I went up that river into the dark country where I met him. It was before the war. I was just loafing around one of the big port towns looking for a ship when I saw that map in a shop window. I was standing there looking at it. I noticed a girl's face reflected in the glass. It's like a snake, isn't it? I beg your pardon? The river. Oh, the river. On the map? Yes. The way it coils inland there from the coast. Yeah, it does look like a snake, doesn't it? And that delta there at the mouth of the river, it's like a bird. As if the snake had hypnotized a silly little bird. Please, I hope you don't think I spoke to you because... Oh, no. Well, you see, I, I come here often to look... No, nah, don't start apologizing. That'll spoil everything. Well, the truth is that... I have a personal interest in that country shown there on the map. I've never been there, nearly everywhere else, but... Feeling all right? It's just a little cold. It always is here in the early morning. Well, the sun's shining brightly at the end of the street. There. I know. I often sit there watching the ships in the harbor. Well, let's go watch them together, shall we? We walked in silence, this strange girl and I, until something, or the sight of the harbor, perhaps the sea reaches stretching out to the distant places of the earth, started her talking. It has been more than a year now since I've heard from him, but I know he's alive. The company was satisfied as long as he went on sending Ivory back to the coast. But now they say the Ivory has stopped coming. Well, I should think they'd send an expedition to see what's happened to your friend. That's unexplored country. The company owns a good steamboat, I believe, but needs an expert navigator. They have not found a man who was willing to try it. Well, I've never been a freshwater sailor, but I'm looking for a ship. Would you... Well... Go on to the company office. <laughs> Look here, what are you talking me into? Don't you see it's his work? His work that's so important. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but bamboozling a bunch of savages for a few elephant tusks. <laughs> that can't be so important. But Eric has a plan, you see. The dark country is the beginning only. His plan will change the world. You really believe that, don't you? What's the name of this remarkable fiancé of yours? Quartz. Eric. But what was it, this plan of his? Well, I don't pretend to have understood it later on when I met him. Well, we'll come to that part of the story.
interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. On April 12, 1945, at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was sitting for a watercolor commission. He suddenly complained of a terrible headache, then slumped forward into his chair unconscious. He was carried into his bedroom. The president's attending cardiologist rushed to the scene. His diagnosis was a massive cerebral hemorrhage. The president died at 3.55 p.m. He was 63. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis, Jr., speaking from the Mutual Studios in New York City. This nation has suffered this day a staggering loss. At this moment at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt lies with the problems of the nation finally lifted from his shoulders, stricken late this afternoon with cerebral hemorrhage. He passed away before his physicians could be of any assistance if assistance in such a case is possible at all. Vice President Harry Truman, who from here on will be President Truman, went immediately to the White House. A special cabinet meeting was called, and we should know more about what is going to happen in Washington as the evening wears on. But Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first president to be elected for four terms in the White House, has passed away, and that is the overshadowing of all news events that have happened or can happen for quite a while. Fiorello LaGuardia, New York City's mayor, offered remarks on his WNYC radio program that evening. My fellow New Yorkers, the one dominant thought in our minds is that shared by 130 million Americans in our country and hundreds of millions of men and women throughout the world. The greatest casualty of the entire world now suffered by all the people of the world. The shock is so great that under ordinary conditions it would be exceedingly difficult to absorb. But we must carry on because of him whose death the entire world mourned. On the morning of April 13th, 
Roosevelt's body was placed in a flag-draped coffin and loaded onto the presidential train. Along the route to Washington, thousands flocked to the tracks to pay their respects. Here are the great, and here too are the many like you and I. He was the leader for us all. An official delegation headed by President Harry S. Truman is here. The train has just pulled in, and the special honorary guard, the bearers representing two non-commissioned officers from each of the services, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps, have lifted the late President Roosevelt from the train and onto a caisson which is pulled by six white horses and very shortly we expect that the caisson will start its solemn, sorrowful procession through Washington. The Army Air Forces Band is playing music. Perhaps you can hear it in the background. Here, as well as the official representation, which involves virtually every high official in the government and from the embassies, are the Roosevelts, the Bottingers, the Elliott Roosevelts, Mrs. John Roosevelt and Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt. John and Franklin, on duty for their country, were unable to be here. On the way up from Warm Springs in that long, slow trip, I'm told that a plane circled overhead, virtually all the way. Here also, I can see every member of the cabinet, James Burns, the Supreme Court, Senators White and Allender. We're going to try to walk out nearer the nearer the Cajuns and therefore nearer the Army Air Forces Band. Perhaps you can hear some of the music that they're playing. They're quite a ways in the distance. Crowds are lining Constitution Avenue from here at the trackside to the White House where this procession ends. After a White House funeral on April 14th, the president went by train to his Springwood estate in Hyde Park, New York. He was buried the next day. That same day, April 15, 1945, Edward R. Murrow delivered his report from Buchenwald that forever changed society. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard had you been with me on Thursday. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite to hear what Germans have done, now is a good time to switch off the radio. For I propose to tell you of Buchenwald. It is on a small hill about four miles outside Weimar, and it was one of the largest concentration camps in Germany, and it was built to last. As we approached it, we saw about a hundred men in civilian clothes, with rifles, advancing in open order across the field. There were a few shots. We stopped to inquire. We're told that some of the prisoners had a couple of SS men cornered in there. We drove on, reached the main gate. The prisoners crowded up behind the wire. We entered. And now let me tell this in the first person. For I was the least important person there, as you shall hear. There surged around me an evil-smelling horde. Men and boys reached out to touch me. They were in rags, in the remnants of uniforms. Death had already marked many of them, but they were smiling with their eyes. 
two days later, Orson Welles took to the air on This Is My Best with an episode entitled, I Will Not Go Back. Now listen to This Is My Best. Presented each week by Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine. Wine of friendly nature. Pride of the vintner's art. Symbol of hospitality. Compliment to honored guest. A wine to serve proudly, saying, This is my best. This is Cresta Blanca. C-R-E-S-T-A? B-L-A-N-C-A. Cresta Blanca. Cresta Blanca. Tonight, Cresta Blanca Wine, sponsor of This Is My Best, departs from its usual series of dramatic presentation of the world's great stories to bring you this special broadcast in keeping with the events of the times. Written by Milton Geiger and titled, I Will Not Go Back. And now, our producer. This is Orson Welles. Last week, an American president fell in the midst of battle. This radio program is dedicated to the American future he so greatly served and to the new president who has taken over that high service. Six weeks before he died, Mr. Roosevelt wrote me these words. April will be a critical month in the history of human freedom. It will see the meeting in San Francisco of a great conference of the United Nations the nations united in this war against tyranny and militarism. At that conference, the peoples of the world will decide through their representatives and in response to their will whether or not the best hope for peace the world has ever had will be realized. Discussions by the people of this country and by the peoples of the freedom-loving world of the proposals which will be considered at San Francisco are necessary, are indeed essential, as the purpose of the people to make peace and to keep peace is to be expressed in action. I've quoted in part from Mr. Roosevelt's last letter to me. Tonight's broadcast is one of those discussions he felt we ought to have. It's a broad and general discussion without technicalities or politics. It deals with somebody called man with his age-long preparation for April 25th, 1945, with his high task, which is the keeping of peace on earth, in justice and in decency, for all time. Over the concrete and the steel, astride the mills and factories, the temples and the farms, the thunderous commerce of the cities, the oceans and the rivers to the oceans, over the hills, the mountains and the valleys of earth, over the fervent hush of the hopeful peoples, watches a spirit.
of the mists of time. Out of the ancient yesterday, the spirit came. Out of the mists of time. Out of the oom and slime. Out of the dreadful dawning. Out of the dim, wet morning of the earth. I came, and I will not go back. Now the earth was without form and void. Wells' tenure at the helm of This Is My Best was stormy and brief. He argued with the network and sponsors' agency. They felt he hijacked the show and undermined the weekly budget. Untenanted. He was fired on April 24th, and there was the restless charged with compromising the show for his personal agenda. He had scheduled the play, Don't Catch Me, which he had been trying to develop into a film for he and Rita Hayworth. Time stood speechless among the blank and silent days. Wells' last appearance was in a play entitled, Anything Can Happen. There was eternity, and there was a plan. And reason, there was God. Victory in Europe was achieved on May 7th. And then, then in the scheme of time, Now we're breaking into our programs for the second time tonight, this time with some splendid news from Moscow. Berlin has fallen. Marshal Stalin has just announced the complete capture of the capital of Germany, the center of German imperialism, and the cradle of German aggression. Berlin garrison laid down their arms this afternoon. More than 70,000 prisoners have been rounded up so far today. It would probably be with us. We've been kept a number of times since then without getting it, but now it is here. The president announced at 7 p.m. today the unconditional and unqualified surrender of the Japanese. General Douglas MacArthur takes over as the Allied Supreme Commander and the man who will tell Emperor Hirohito just how to run Japan. Orson Welles ended the war the same way he began it, collaborating with Norman Corwin. On July 24th, he appeared on Columbia Presents Corwin in New York, a tapestry of radio. Orson Welles in Norman Corwin's New York, a tapestry for radio. 
Tonight, in the fourth of a limited series of eight broadcasts for CBS, Norman Corwin is privileged to bring you Orson Welles as narrator of one of the most widely requested of all Corwin's programs, New York, a tapestry for radio. The original musical score is by Frederick Steiner, and the orchestra is conducted by Lud Gluskin. Orson Welles in New York. Time, on the four-faced Paramount clock, says in quadruplicate that it is ten o'clock. And so good evening to you, Queen of the Hemisphere. Four times good evening. And by this time tomorrow, may the enemies of all free men's cities be more desperate and damned than ever. End of salutation. Let us acknowledge that you have a handsome profile, City of New York, and get that over with. Long ago, you were voted the city most likely to succeed. And tonight, the 12th generation of Americans salutes you with special reference to the populace, which takes you for its lawful address. The Manhattanese, Brooklynese, Astorians... Jamaicans, Bronxites, who think the rest of the world is all right to visit, but who wouldn't want to live any place but here. This tapestry, being dimensioned by a half hour of your time and the arbitrary limits of the city, has for its warp the avenues and for its weft the crosstown streets, the shuttle traveling back and forth, as you'd expect, between Grand Central and Times Square. As for loom, that's what ships do on the horizons of the city practically continuously, in which connection, God bless our Navy and the ships of the Merchant Marine, as well as the Port of New York Authority and sailors of the National Maritime Union, 346 West 17th Street. So much for shuttle, loom, and weft. Regarding individual threads, you will have to follow them by listening acutely. For there will be excursions and motifs, snatches of native song and speech, time signals, bulletins, reflections, and footsteps. To say nothing of the retirement of batters at first base, and of ballerinas from ballet at the age of 40. However... The main design is in the middle and will be clear enough when you stand back and see the whole. The people of the city are the main design. The names in the directories, but for the grace of whom the place becomes an empty mesa and a pincushion of stone, a petrified island of forgotten dividends and cobwebs in the elevator shafts. What that design is, you citizens of sister cities, you hearers on the plains and uplands, 
Sit still and listen. It well may be a special hope, a pattern of felicity to you and to your kids. Two fetuses conceived this month and next and ever after. That, as I say, comes later. But it's in the weave if you will stay and look it over with us in a certain light. They called me up, uh, gave me about six hours' notice. They called me and said, would you go on the air with something on VJ? I did a 15-minute thing. In those days, one was very rich in, in the talent resources, and I had no less than Orson Welles and Olivia de Havilland do that for me. Oh. That was called 14 August, which is published. It appears in the last of the three collections called Untitled and Other Dramas. Japan surrendered after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Norman Corwin was tabbed by CBS to produce a piece on the victory. Corwin cast Wells in the role of orator. father of great anniversaries. Men and saints shall picnic together on 14 August down more years than you or I shall see. So say it tonight with saluting guns. Say it with roses. Say it with a hand clasp, a drink, a prayer. Say it any way you want, but say it. Say it! Columbia Broadcasting System presents 14 August, a message for the day of victory by Norman Corwin, spoken by Orson Welles. Congratulations for being alive and listening on this night. Millions didn't make it. They died before their time, and they are gone and gone, for the fascists got them. They are not here, but their acts are here, and they are to be saluted from the lips and from the heart before the conversation swings around to reconversion. Fire a cannon to their everlasting memory. God and uranium were on our side. The wrath of the atom fell like a commandment, and the very planet quivered with implications. Tokyo Rose was hung over from the news next day, and the emperor prayed to himself for succor. 
So sound the guns for Achilles, the atom, and the war workers, Newton and Galileo, Curie and Einstein, the Archangel Gabriel, and the community of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, the peoples have come a long way. The next month on September 16th, Orson Welles began a 15-minute commentary series sponsored by Lear Radios on ABC. It was to combine Hollywood and Broadway news, along with social and political opinion. He'd have to tone down his radio work. Film had come calling once again. In spite of which, as you have heard on the radio tonight... In failing to speak, you become a part of the crime. But I'm already a part of it. Because I'm a part of you. In the fall of 1945, Wells began work on The Stranger, a film noir drama about a war crimes investigator who tracks a high-ranking Nazi fugitive to a New England town. Gee, Mr. Wilson, you must be wrong. Mary wouldn't fall in love with that kind of a man. Well, I hope I am wrong, Noah, but... That's the way it is. People can't help who they fall in love with. Co-star Edward G. Robinson and Loretta Young. Wells hadn't directed a film since 1942. Producer Sam Spiegel gave him the chance to make a film on schedule and under budget. RKO even dangled the proposed four-picture deal for Wells if he was successful. You are a fool. When they find me, they'll know you're still here. But darling, you're on the verge of a breakdown. Any child could see you'd wind up killing yourself. Kill me, I wanted. I couldn't face life knowing what I've been to you and what I've done to Noah. But when you kill me, don't touch me with your hand. Wells wanted to give the film a nightmarish tone. He filmed in long takes, and The Stranger was the first commercial film to use documentary footage from the Nazi concentration camps. It was completed one day ahead of schedule and under budget. But within weeks of completing the filming, RKO backed out of its promised deal. No reason was given, but the impression was left that the film wouldn't make money. The Stranger cost just over a million dollars to make. Fifteen months after its release, it had grossed more than three times that amount. It was the only film made by Wells to have been a bona fide box office success upon its release. We are again in the field, larger, livelier, better, prettier, saucier, and more independent than ever. The Ant Street fire consumed our types, presses, manuscripts, paper, some bad poetry, and subscription books. But the Herald's soul was saved. Our spirit is as exuberant as ever. James Gordon Bennett, 1835. 
since the spring of 1835, where the offices of New York Sun, published by Benjamin Day and edited by George Wisner. When the Sun launched in 1833, it became New York's first successful one-cent newspaper. Prior to the Sun's launch, the most widely read city papers were the Courier and Enquirer, Evening Post, Evening Star, and Commercial Advertiser. The city's 11 merchant papers had a combined circulation of only 26,500. All were produced within a few blocks of each other near Wall Street, William, and Nassau. The papers covered foreign affairs, Washington dealings, and little of local culture. But by 1833, as New York City's population soared past 200,000, you'd have heard English, German, French, Spanish, Italian, and any number of other foreign languages on the streets of New York. These six-cent merchant papers were missing an opportunity, and Benjamin Day stepped in. The New York Sun was dramatically different. It was smaller in size, and just below the nameplate was the price, one penny. Many of the reports on tariffs and trade politics were replaced by stories littered with sex, romance, intrigue, violence, and death. The Sun's daily circulation soon reached over 10,000. Then an old rival, James Gordon Bennett, launched a new penny paper, the New York Morning Herald, and his readership was catching up. Benjamin Day needed help. He wanted an editor capable of captivating the entire city and changing the literary landscape in New York forever. With a well-timed hire and a well-timed fire, Benjamin Day will get his wish. Coming soon to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction set in 1835 New York City. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts by searching for Burning Gotham or go to burninggotham.com. You see, audiences, in the real sense of the word, are disappearing. There are almost none left. It's an endangered species. Everybody's on? No. You see, this isn't an audience here. No. False pretense? No, no. It's wonderful, lovely people, and we're so grateful for you, but you're not an audience. You got in free. <laughs> an audience? And not, not only did you get in free, but you know, as does every studio audience, that you are not here to do anything except be a member of the cast and to help us look good. <laughs> oh, have you, seriously, have you ever seen, have you ever seen a television show where the audience 
booed and hissed or refused to applaud? We're always it's on. always a big hit on television, isn't it? No, because we're... the people who come to the show know that they're part of the cast yeah. and have to help us not to look ridiculous. Yeah. Our real audience is two or three people in a living room scattered yeah. all over the right. place, but that isn't a real audience. No. An audience is a big, many-headed beast crouching out there in the darkness, waiting to eat us up or love us or whatever, and it must be either seduced or tamed or raped or whatever. And it must be dealt with. How because anybody who deals with a real audience, as I have, my goodness, think how long I've been in show business. I've been hissed and booed. I've had things thrown at me. Until you've had that experience, you don't understand what dealing with an audience is. Uh, hey, yo. Hey, Danny Kay. Just a minute, chum. Are you addressing me? Yeah, Kay, I... Oh, you're Rawson Wells. <laughs> I mistook you for Danny Kay. How dare you? <laughs> oh, excuse me, Mr. Wells. I should have known. I just saw your latest picture. Tomorrow's forever. Thank you, but I'm on my way to appear on the Danny Kay program. Yeah? You're going to think tonight's forever. <laughs> Who are you? I'm an average radio listener. Well, you look older than 12. <laughs> Tell me, my Vox Popoff, I haven't heard any of Mr. K's programs this year. What does he do? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> All I know is he has one joke. My sister married an Irishman, O'Reilly, no O'Reilly. You'll find out. Now, just a minute, my killer psycho killjoy. In the spring of 1946, with production on The Stranger Wrapped, Wells was back in Hollywood taking guest spots on The Danny K Show, The Fred Allen Show, and Radio Reader's Digest. Greeting cards present the Reader's Digest Radio Edition, starring today Orson Welles. Now, here's your host for Hallmark Greeting Cards, Arnold Moss. Thank you, Basil Rosdale. This Sunday and every Sunday, the makers of Hallmark Greeting Cards present the radio edition of the Reader's Digest. America's favorite magazine, to remind you that whenever you want to remember someone, you'll find a Hallmark card that says what you want to say the way you want to say it. So when you choose a card, look on the back for the identifying words, a Hallmark card. And remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. This is a big day for the Hallmark program. Today we have radio's outstanding dramatic artist, the theater's most daring producer, the theater's most colorful actor, the shooting star of Hollywood, a successful producer of pictures, one of Hollywood's glittering stars, and a young man who's setting us all a very good example by taking an active part in politics. That's quite a galaxy of talent. But the whole matter is greatly simplified because all of these are one man. And that one man is... Orson Welles. And here he is, all six of them. Thank you, Arnold Moss. And I might add, a sleight of hand artist and a magician of no mean proportions. He even saws women in hand. Arnold, an omelette is a charm worn around the neck. And what? A bust is something a lady wears. What, what, what is it? Chivalry is what you feel when you're cold. Oh, come, come on. A myth is a female moth. Well, what's going on here? 
A spinal column is a long bunch of bones where the head sits on top and you sit on the bottom. <laughs> what started this on The function of the stomach is to hold up the petticoats. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Savages can have as many wives as they please, but civilized people only have one at a time, and that is known as monotony. <laughs> Mr. Wells, where did you get that beautiful collection of misinformation? From the Reader's Digest. Prize bonus from children's test papers. I'm trying to Orson and Rita Hayworth had hoped the birth of their daughter would ease some of the tumultuousness in their relationship. It did not. Hayworth later told her biographer that during their entire marriage, Wells showed no interest in establishing a home. He didn't want the responsibility. Then Wells decided to make a musical of Around the World in 80 Days. His idea? A train-traveling stage circus. The cast soon ballooned to 70. Producer Mike Todd pulled out. Wells called Columbia's Harry Cohn for money. I put all my money into it, and before the opening in Boston, the costumes were sitting in the railway station, and there was $55,000 to pay for them, or they wouldn't go to the theater for the opening night. I was in the box office. I was trying to think who in Hollywood could send me $55,000 in the next three hours. I thought Harry Cohn. Only one with the courage to do it. I called him up and I said, Harry, said, what is it? What do you want? I said, I've got the greatest story you've ever read. And I turned the paperback around that the girl in the box office was reading. It's called The Man I Killed. And I said, it's called The Man I Killed. Written by such and such a paperback. Buy it. I said, you get me $55,000 to Boston, two hours, and I'll make the picture. I'll write it and direct it and act in it. 55,000 came. In exchange, Wells would put the play on Broadway and direct a film at no fee. But Rita had a long-standing hatred for Cohn, her boss. In late spring, Wells moved to New York. Around the World in 80 Days premiered at the Adelphi Theater on May 31, 1946. Good evening. This is Orson Welles, your producer of a special series of broadcasts presented by the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. Ladies and gentlemen, the element of suspense is so vital to our story tonight that our sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, are omitting their usual commercial message during the intermission between the acts so that our play will go uninterrupted from spooky start to spooky finish. Therefore, let's give Ken Roberts his 45-second opportunity right now to extol the merits of that blended, splendid... Uh, Ken? Of that blended, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. Those two words tell the whole flavor story. You see, every single drop of Pabst Blue Ribbon is the happy result of blending. The next Friday, June 7th at 10 p.m., Wells debuted a new CBS series, That's right. The Mercury Summer Theater. It was sponsored by Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. On the summer solstice, the Mercury performed Lucille Fletcher's classic, The Hitchhiker. But fresh, clean, sparkling, with the real beer taste coming through just the way you like it. Friends, these days, when your dealer is occasionally unable to supply you with all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you'd like, 
please keep on asking. For every single bottle you do get will live up to the same high standards of quality and taste. Yes, every bottle will be, as always, blended splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now, Mr. Wells. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among radio thrillers. Its author is one of the most gifted of all the writers who've ever worked for this medium, Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the greatest single radio script ever written. Sorry, wrong number. The title of this, her terrifying little tale of Gru, for this evening, is another spine tingler by name, The Hitchhiker. I am in an auto camp on Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, Maybe it'll help me. It'll keep me from going crazy. But I must tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well. Perfectly well. Except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age, unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Ford V8, license number 6V7989. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane, that it is not me who's gone mad, but something else, something utterly beyond my control. But I must speak quickly. At any moment, the link with life may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth, the last night I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss, and then I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. (laughs) It's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this, tears? Oh, it's just the trip, Ronald. I wish you weren't driving. Oh, mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast. Or pick up any strangers on the road. Strangers? Don't you worry. There isn't anything going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads with a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. I was in excellent spirits. Drive ahead. Even the loneliness seemed like a lark. But I reckoned without him... Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. He stepped off the walk, and if I hadn't swerved, if I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. Now, I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb 
pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he'd got there, but I thought maybe one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the skyway, and let him off. I didn't stop for him. Then, late that night, I saw him again. It was on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels when I saw him standing under an arc light by the side of the road. I could see him quite distinctly. The bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain spattered over his shoulders. He hailed me this time. stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country through the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides, the coincidences, or whatever it was, gave me the willies. I stopped at the next gas station. Yes, sir. Fill her up, will you? Check your oil? No, thanks. Nice night, isn't it? Yes. It, it uh, hasn't been raining here lately, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh, no? I... I suppose that hasn't done your business any harm. Well, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, though. Ain't many pleasure cars out in the turnpike this season of the I year. I guess not. What about hitchhikers? <laughs> hitchhikers here? Why, what's the matter? Don't you ever see any? A guy be a fool who started out to hitchhike on this road. Look at it. Then you never see anybody? Nope. Maybe they get a lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it's a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't pick up a guy for that long a ride. This is pretty lonesome country here, mountains and woods. Yeah. You ain't seen nobody like that, have you? Oh, no, no. It's, it's just a <laughs> technical question. Oh, I see. Well, uh, that'll be $1.49 with the tax. <laughs> thing gradually passed from my mind as coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio. I saw him again. It was a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence. Nor was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little the cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked... He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello. Hello. I'd stopped the car, of course, for the detour. For a few minutes, I couldn't seem to find the new road. I realized he must be thinking that I'd stopped for him. Hello. No, no, I'm... Not just now, I, I'm sorry. Going to California? No, 
No, not today. The other way. I'm, I'm going to New York. Sorry. Sorry. After I got the car back onto the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. Yet at the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. I don't know what this means, or even if it has meaning, but I can't resist mention of the fact that this much can be revealed concerning the appearance of tonight's Adam Bomb. It will be decorated with a photograph, a sizable likeness, of a young lady named Rita Haywood. Not long ago, I watched quite another sort of young lady paint her lips with something called, over the counter, the Atom Lipstick. A case of the cosmetic being fashioned according to the popular conceptions of the original war engine. I'm sure you won't need to be told that Miss Hayworth is not one to use such a thing or to hold it as anything less than a very hideous conceit. Her face is not on the atom bomb then by her own choosing, but by election of the flyers who will drop the bomb and work clearly for business according to their taste. As regards selection, I find their taste beyond reproach, but the bomb dropping itself better be worthy of the accompanying photograph. Is this, Faustus claimed of Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless tower civilian? Well, I want a better toast, a better boast for Rebecca. I want my daughter to be able to tell her daughter that grandmother's picture was on the last atom bomb ever to explode. Now my time's about up. About time for me to say goodbye to you. With one more word about this OPA business, if I have a second. You can send a wire, if you will, or a special delivery letter to your congressman or... President Truman upholding his courageous stand, demanding immediate enactment of effective price control legislation. If you do, you'll be saving that dollar and making it worth something. Now my time is up. Thanks for listening. Please let me come to call again the same time. Next week, same station. Until then, I repeat to yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. When Orson Welles took to the air on WJZ in New York at 1.15 in the afternoon on June 30th, 1946, the United States was about to undergo two massive changes. At 5 p.m. New York time, the fourth atomic bomb was detonated in the Bikini Atoll. The nuclear test called Operation Crossroads was the first atomic detonation after Nagasaki. A fleet of 73 retired and unmanned ships were destroyed, sunk, or damaged during the test. The men dropping the bomb named it Gilda in Rita Hayworth's honor. Her biggest film was then out in theaters. She was mortified. Then at midnight, the emergency wartime powers of the United States Office of Price Administration expired. Although the OPA's powers were reinstated within the month, 
they were dissolved the following May. In the year after World War II, more than 5 million U.S. citizens went on strike, stifling the economy. It led to the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. The largest inflation rise in the country's modern history ensued. Wells remained in New York the rest of the summer. Around the World in 80 Days closed on August 3rd. The Mercury Summer Theater went off the air on September 13th. And the final commentary aired on October 6th, 1946 on ABC. It was the last time Orson Welles produced his own radio series. Smart to carry a gun, traveling alone in the park. Was... But if you knew you had the gun in your bag, why throw away the bag? I meant for you to find it. I... I don't know how to shoot. It's easy. You just pull the trigger. The film Harry Cohn ordered Orson Welles to make was The Lady from Shanghai. For the lead, Welles cast his estranged wife, Rita Hayworth. Many of the Mercury players were featured. Some dame, ain't she? Yeah. Comes a change of weather. I did Around the World in 80 Days. Lost fortune on it. But we had a musical that Brecht went to see seven times. And was, I think, the best thing I ever did in the theater. But it was a financial disaster. And I had divorced from Rita. She came to me and said, I want to make your picture. I want you to come back with me. Harry sent for me and said, I want you to do that with Rita, for her sake. Well, that turned it from five weeks to a big, super movie. Production began on October 2nd, and Wells clashed with Harry Cohn from the start. Orson convinced Rita to cut her hair off and dye it blonde. Although the couple was on the verge of divorce, Hayworth sided with Wells. She later told the New York Times, Orson was trying something new with me. Will you help me? But Harry Cohn wanted the image. The image he was going to make me till I was 90. Do you believe in love at all, Mrs. Bannister? The lady from Shanghai was a very good picture. Give me the wheel. So what does Harry Cohn say when he sees it? He's ruined you. He cut your hair off. The essential plot is the plot of the book that I pointed to, which I had never read. In here, we're less likely to be here. I was thinking it was only your husband you wanted to secure. Why don't you try to understand? So the theory, which has been printed a thousand times, this was an act of vengeance against Rita. After that, I knew I couldn't trust him. It was a great device. He was mad. Which I was going to degrade her shot. and so on. It's nonsense because all that's in the book. We could have gone off together. Into the sunrise. She'd read the book and wanted to play this character. So she was an actress. I love you. You build her up. This is the end of self-focus. Yes, all that. Then put her in the gutter at the end. But haven't you heard ever of something better to follow? No. After filming wrapped in February of 1947, 
Cone ordered a series of retakes. I knew I'd find you two together. If I hadn't, Elsa, I might have gone on playing it your way. They took another year. You didn't know that. Columbia then chopped more than an hour from Wells' original cut. I presume you think that if you murder me here... Wells delivered the original film on time and under budget. But Cone's retakes helped contribute to Wells' reputation for not being able to pay attention to details. Our good friend, the district attorney, is just itching to open a letter that I left with Upon original release, the film was considered a disaster. So you'd be foolish to fire that gun. These mirrors, it's difficult to tell. You are aiming at me, aren't you? I'm aiming at you, lover. Not long after, course, on November 10, 1947, myself. Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth were officially divorced. But you know, I'm pretty tired of both of us. You know, for a smart girl, you make a lot of mistakes. You should have let me live. You're gonna need a good lawyer. Orson came in to that wonderful company of March of Time. We had a Welsh act, and he was going to play a Welshman. And of course, that glorious voice, Paul Stewart, who was an actor, as you all know from pictures, but he was always on the air before that. He was on the March of Time on many other shows. He heard Orson and said that he introduced that voice to the company of the March of Time. And when Orson came in, he was such an overwhelming presence because of his youth, maybe he was 19 about that time, and he was so gaunt and hungry looking. And uh, <laughs> it was a rough time, I don't mean that to be in any way comical because a lot of people were not eating regularly in the theater, and it was all very obvious in this eloquent performer who gripped us all the minute he opened his mouth. It was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. The voice and the performance was something never to be forgotten. You suppose Orson was ever out of work? I mean, yes, he was he start out of work. And this was the first was work he had had. He was doing, I forget if Ted was with him at that time, I think this was perhaps before Shoemaker's Holiday that he came on March of Time. And things were very, very spare for him. In 1947, wanting to bring Macbeth to film, Wells teamed with producer Charles K. Feldman to convince Herbert Yates, 
president of Republic Pictures to finance. Wells guaranteed to deliver a completed negative of Macbeth on a budget of $700,000. When some members of Republic's board expressed misgivings on the project, Wells agreed to personally pay any amount over the initial ask. He brought Irish actor Dan O'Herley in as Macduff, and cast former child star Roddy McDowell as Malcolm. Longtime friend and radio legend Jeanette Nolan would play Lady Macbeth. You asked about Macbeth. He came to our house here. We were surprised when he came, and he described to John and me his idea, and he came to us because he said he wanted Lady Macbeth to be kind of a wife like John had. <laughs> Didn't want her, you know, with all of the evil overtones. And he said, I'm going to try to be like you. You know, he was so funny. I John, he loved John. <laughs> he was bringing Dan from Ireland to do Macduff. And so he said to John, the only part you can't play are my part and Macduff. But he says, you can play anything else you want. And John said, I will only play the part that has the least lines. <laughs> I don't want to have to learn lines. But anyway, he described his dream of making what you could almost call an entirely wholesome pair of people out of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, which was surprising to us, you know. We hadn't really read it that way. And so, Nor had anyone else. No. But it was very interesting, and he wanted it to be barbaric. And then he laughed, you know, and he said, of course, your Montana backbone, that'll take care of all of that rustic part of it. But he said, I want it to be all black and all white. And he said, I know I can't get that, but I have a great cameraman who will do the very best he can to make it look like a woodcut. That's how he visualized it. Hmm. He wanted it to look like a series of woodcuts. And he said, I want the Scottish. I want that rogue, I want that dialect throughout the cast. That goes with the barbaric aspects of my version in this particular dramatization of Macbeth. So we were quite overwhelmed and amazed that he had come to see us and that he offered us that opportunity to do that. Wells made several changes to Shakespeare's original, like adding significance to the witches. They were played by two other Hollywood radio legends, Peggy Weber and Sam Spade's Loreen Tuttle. Of course, a lot of the shows were put out awfully fast, you know. One summer, I did the Sam Spade show and the Orson Welles show all at once. It seemed to me they were on at the same time, practically. So. I said to Orson, I can't make this rehearsal. I can possibly make the show in about three minutes if I can get from NBC to CBS. But I said, I can't rehearse. And he said, well, come over and rehearse noontime then, during the lunch hour. So I would come over there, and of course he always loved to talk. And he would talk all through lunch, and I wouldn't get to rehearse with him because he always had a coterie of people around him, you know, and wanted to hear him talk. So I would just sit there, you know, with my script in my hand. Then I'd have to hand the script back because they'd say, oh, there'll be a lot of changes, so you better not take it with you. Wells expressed frustrations with wardrobes in the tight schedule. He had the cast pre-record all of their dialogue. Locations were leftover sets from westerns normally made at Republic. The entire production was done in 23 days in July of 1947, 
In September, Wells signed on to star in Gregory Ratoff's Black Magic. Shooting would take place in Rome. He wouldn't return until 1948. Republic initially trumpeted the film as an important work, entering it in the 1948 Venice Film Festival. But it was abruptly withdrawn after poor comparisons with Laurence Olivier's version of Hamlet also being screened. Life magazine gave the film a terrible review in October of 1948, saying that Wells' days as the boy wonder were long over. When he returned from Europe in the spring, Wells cut 20 minutes from the film at Republic's request and recorded narration to cover the gaps. But when it was finally released, it too was called a disaster. Wells' last appearance in the 1940s on American radio was in a pre-recorded segment on mail call over the Armed Forces Radio Service on October 13, 1948. Now 33 years old, Orson Wells had enough of Hollywood. He would move to Europe full-time. like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. I think it comes from being a Leo like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. Good evening, and with me once again is the man who uh, really makes the program possible with his fabulous collection of recordings, Ed Corcoran. Well, thank you, Dick. That's very nice words. Ed, you know, I'm going to let you introduce our guest tonight because you had the opportunity to uh, meet him prior to the show. Maybe I can start off by asking what your license number is there, Mr. 137596. What does that mean, you Dick? <laughs> None other than Sam Spade, alias Howard Duff, uh, Sam Spade and uh, many other famous roles in both radio, television, movies, and theater, Nick. So we've got another biggie here. We certainly have. <laughs> Howard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the golden age of radio and to put your career in perspective because you are known today by current-day audiences on television and motion pictures, on the stage. You're uh, one of the few who had a major career in radio but has gone on to even more exciting things. You mean I've survived. real sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodbye. Now, wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this. Not without... Oh, all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well, can't you at least look at me? After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam, apparently you're laboring under an apprehension. Of course I am. Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July. What are you talking about? My vacation. Vacation? You just had a vacation a few months back. Well, Sam, that's a year. Well, if you want to take advantage of the legal technicality... Now, Sam, don't say goodbye, man. Well, it... Well, it's customary, I suppose. It's, it's lucky that some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground, an eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's the spring of 1946. Famed suspense director William Spear has finally agreed to take on another show. He'll cast a relative unknown actor named Howard Duff in the title role. Duff will become synonymous with his character. Sam Spade, taking the lead into the 1950s. And as for Orson Welles in the 1950s? Well, 
victims. Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, I want Free of income tax? The only way you can save money now, Dave. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. The reading material used in today's episode was... Citizen Wells by Frank Brady. This is Orson Wells by Wells and Peter Bogdanovich. On the Air by John Dunning. Discovering Orson Wells by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Orson Wells on the Air at orsonwells.indiana.edu and wellsnet.com. On the interview front, Orson Wells was with Peter Bogdanovich, Dick Cavett, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Leslie McGahee, Dinah Shore, and Hugh Weldon. Byron Kane and Jeanette Nolan were with Spurvac. To find out more, please go to Spurvac.com. Norman Corwin was with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chat at speakingofradio.com. Howard Duff was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear their full chat at goldenage-wtic.org. Robert Wise was with Leslie McGahee. Jack Benny spoke with Jack Carney. Lorene Tuttle spoke with Same Time, Same Station in 1972. And Agnes Moorhead was with Dick Cavett in 1973. Selected music featured in today's episode was Perfida by Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra, The Klezmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan, The Third Man by Anton Karras, Hooray for Hollywood by Don Swan, The Battle Cry of Freedom by Jacqueline Schwab, and Star of Bethlehem, conducted by John Williams. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who help supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2000. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 105 will spotlight the adventures of Sam Spade and reveal how the chemistry amongst those on the series helped create one of radio's most fun shows. This episode will be available beginning July 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime... Give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the Wallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash the Wallbreakers. So, until July 1st, my name is James Scully. This is has been Breaking Walls, episode 104. 
and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.